0: Welcome back to the Reeducation and Happy New Year. This episode looks at the history of Jews who have sided with the enemies of our people. From Pfefferkorn to Finkelstein, there is a long tradition of the Asa Jews. My guest is the Reeducation's Chief Rabbi, Ari Lam. Stay tuned. This is a good one. To play that game,
1: of Zionist apologists, Israel supporters, genocide apologists, apartheid apologists, occupation apologists. I don't play their little bullshit game.
2: We
0: just heard from Sally Hunt. She is a TikTok, YouTube influencer of sorts. And if you go on her socials, where she goes by Sally Hates Capitalism, I don't recommend it, you will find her preening. She refuses to condemn Hamas. These mass shooters and gang rapists have just been resisting an attempted genocide. Well, bravo, Sally. Now, we've covered these cretins in past shows, but I'm interested in Ms. Hunt because of how she identifies herself. She is, and I quote from her Twitter bio, a Marxist-Leninist, anti-racist, anti-imperialist, anti-Zionist, and ethnically Jewish, pro-LGBTQ, pro-indigenous, intersectional feminist. End quote. I imagine her pronouns are dirtbag and Bolshevik, but I digress. I start the show today with Sally Hates Capitalism because she is a great example of the as a Jew. You know the type. This is the guy wearing a talus in a crowd of kafia-clad protesters trying to block traffic at the JFK airport. It's that Brooklyn editor who has written a 7,000-word personal essay for her substack on how her birthright trip to Israel scarred her for life by forcing Zionist propaganda down her throat. Or it's the bearded Rabbi Jessica Rosenberg who confronted President Biden in Minnesota in November in this memorable exchange. Mr. President, oh, my God. Care about Jewish people as a rabbi, I need you to call for a ceasefire right now. The as jews get their name because of that clause. We've heard it for years. As a Jew, I don't think AIPAC should dominate American foreign policy. As a Jew, I stand against the illegal occupation of Palestine. Blah, blah, blah. Now, up front, I want to say something. It's important to note that it's fair to criticize Israel. For example, arguing that Israel should... Do more to avoid civilian casualties while also acknowledging that Hamas started another war with a grotesque act of savagery and hides among Gaza's civilians. Well, that is legitimate. I may disagree here and there, but there's nothing wrong with that. But when Jews target Israel as a moral obscenity, a singular geopolitical evil, critique curdles into defamation. And these new defamers are not exactly trying to persuade. They have the zeal... Of the convert. Many a Jews were at one point Zionists, but over time they did the work and they saw that Israel was no David, it was Goliath. Here is a Jewish Voice for Peace testimonial, an organization that embodies the ethos of the a Jews in its deceptive title, as if the Zionists are voices for war.
1: My college roommate named Hannah, my first day of college. Um, We walk in and we start decorating our dorm room and she hung up a poster that said Free Gaza. Um, And something inside of me um, agreed because all human beings deserve um, like freedom and dignity. And I started questioning what was my people's role in not making it free.
0: Yes, a poster in a dorm room triggered Hannah Virtueberg, or whatever her name is to abandon the Jewish state and embrace its negation. Now, the Aza-Jews after October 7 are almost exclusively a diaspora phenomenon. What remains of the Israeli left supports the war in Gaza and its aims to extirpate the Hamas demons who raped, mutilated, and abducted Jewish toddlers, grandmothers, and teenagers in the name of resistance. The Aza-Jews in the West, though, were not stirred out of their dogma on October 7. They still pressure the West to break ties with Israel.
2: In mainstream political discourse as represented in Washington, the idea of one equal state which allows Palestinian refugees to return is still very much marginal. Many people are quite comfortable with the one state that we have now in which millions of Palestinians lack basic rights, but the idea of trying to make it a state with equality for all um, is a position supported by I think only one member of Congress, Rashida Tlaib. But I do suspect that in the years to come More progressives, including more progressives in Congress, will become open to this idea if only because they come to see that the notion of partition is no longer viable.
0: So that was Peter Beinart. He is modern orthodox. He's a former liberal interventionist, and he committed the worst sin of his generation's Democratic Party. He once supported the Iraq War. Don't worry, he has apologized several times. Anyway, Peter was a tough-minded two-stater for a while. He only wanted to boycott goods from the occupied territories. But now, as we've just heard, he wants one state and is unconcerned if that state is no longer Jewish. Peter Beinart, Jewish Voice for Peace, Jessica Rosenberg, and their fellow travelers are not sending rockets to Hamas. They are not volunteering to physically fight the occupation, but they are fighting on the side of those who seek to destroy Israel nonetheless. They participate in this struggle with their words, and not their arms, so to speak. Their boycotts, lectures, podcast appearances, and testimonial videos are part of an information war to make Israel as it currently exists a pariah. Here is a quote from a Jewish Voice for Peace press release last week after the beginning of the trial against Israel for genocide at the International Court of Justice at The Hague. Quote, If the ICJ determines that Israel is committing genocide, It would help us further escalate our organizing for Palestinian liberation, giving us even greater opportunity to pressure governments around the world to end their support for the Israeli government, not only during this genocide, but for as long as the apartheid regime continues to exist, end quote. So this is not the first time that prominent Jewish voices have used their words to advance the aims of our enemies. It is sadly a long tradition. Centuries ago... When there was no Jewish state, the Jews lobbied their host to banish or convert the Jewish people to Christianity and to confiscate and burn the Talmud. There are many examples of this kind of treachery going all the way back to the Book of Maccabees, but I will focus on one episode from the 16th century that illuminates, in my view, our current moment. So it is August 13, 1509. And that is the date Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian I issues the infamous Padua Mandate, ordering all Jewish books, with the exception of the Old Testament, to be confiscated and destroyed. By 1509, this kind of edict was not unusual in Europe. The Middle Ages saw a succession of libels proliferated against the Jews. They stole or desecrated the substantiation of Christ in the ritual wafer. They used the blood of Christian children in their secret rituals. They were sorcerers alchemists, necromancers, heretics, and blasphemers. And even though these tales were fictions, the punishments were very real. When a Jew was accused of defiling the substantiation of Christ in the German town of Belitz in the 13th century, all of the Jews living there were burned at the stake. The Blood Libel of 1475, which claimed that Jews kidnapped, tortured, and killed a boy known as Simon of Trent, resulted in a similar pogrom. Jewish books in particular were a target for the medieval anti-Semites. They believed that the Talmud contained in its pages knowledge of magic that gave Jews special powers. They believed the Talmud had heresies against the Church and taught Jews to hate Catholics. And in this respect, the German-born Maximilian was part of a long tradition itself that sought to abolish Jewish learning. By the time of the Padua Mandate, he had already expelled Jews living in three of his German territories. For European leaders in the Middle Ages, Maximilian was, was by no means the worst, despite his expulsions, There were prominent Jewish families throughout Germany in this period, and they prospered. He was hostile to the Jews, but he was not a fanatic. What led him to issue the mandate to confiscate and destroy all Talmuds, though, was a man who had that zeal of the convert, an Jew named Johannes Pfefferkorn. Born in Nuremberg in 1469, Pfefferkorn was a mediocrity. He was a vagabond. He wandered medieval Germany and ended up in Cologne. In 1505, he was convicted in prison for robbing a butcher. But by the next year, he was free. He had an epiphany, perhaps after his cellmate put up a free Gaza poster. I joke. So in 1506, Pfefferkorn converts to Catholicism and was baptized along with his wife and children by Dominican friars. And I want to pause here to give a little background on the Dominicans in this period, along with the Franciscans, the Dominicans were, you could say, the button men of the Spanish Inquisition. We remember the Spanish Inquisition today for, of course, its expulsion of Jewish and Muslim citizens and the horrific forced conversions known as auto fe. But a big component of the Inquisition and other similar sorts of campaigns before it was this war on Jewish texts. It was quite popular in this period. The first major burnings and confiscations of the Talmud happened actually in the 13th century, in the 1200s, at the urgings of both popes and kings. And even though the Jews formally appealed in these periods to the Vatican, usually their protests fell on deaf ears. In the 13th century, an instigator of all this book burning and Talmud confiscation was another Jewish convert to Catholicism, Nicholas Donin. He persuaded Pope Gregory IX, that the Jewish Talmud was this vicious slander against Christ and his followers, and it was Gregory that ordered the confiscation and burnings of the Talmud during this period. So when Pfefferkorn wanders out of jail back in 1505, the Dominicans believe they had their next Donan, an ex-Jew, who could persuade the Church and the Emperor to round up the Talmuds in Germany. In Donan's age, there was no printing press. Copies of the Bible were still transcribed by hand. For the Jewish community, the brightest students were tasked with memorizing the Talmud because the scrolls were so expensive and labor-intensive to produce. By the 16th century, Europe, though, had gone wild for the printed page thanks to Gutenberg. All kinds of pamphlets and books were produced at a fraction of the cost from the pre-Gutenberg era. Okay, so with the advent of printing, the church had a renewed interest in regulating and banning books. The old slanders of the Inquisition that the Talmud teaches Jews to hate their host nations, well, they were revived. In this respect, Pfefferkorn had come along at the right moment. The Dominicans set their new convert up for a second career as a pamphleteer. His first works were, by the standards of the day, you could argue moderate. For example, Pfefferkorn said the blood libel, that Jews need the blood of Christian children to make matzah or for other secret rituals. Well, he said that wasn't true. He stressed in these early pamphlets that, He wanted to save his former co-religionists from the heresy in their sacred tasks. So he proposed, for example, to force Jews to attend Catholic sermons. He urged Jews to get out of the money-lending business, but he also asked the church to allow them to practice other professions. But at the same time, even by the standard of the time, we should also note that Pfefferkorn was a pernicious liar and bullshit artist. In a pamphlet called Judenbecht, or Jewish Confession, Pfeffer Korn argues falsely that the ritual of Yom Kippur, where Jews fast for a day and in synagogue kind of recount the sins of their community, and it's the holiest day, we should say, of the Jewish year, well, he says it was an invention of wicked rabbis, and it's not a reflection of the true Judaism of the Old Testament. This was a theme for Pfeffer Korn, The religion as it was practiced in the early 1500s, in his view, was a deviation that it had led the Jewish people astray. So he urges his readers to consider, and I quote here, the shameful and evil deeds of the Jews who curse and desecrate the almighty God, Mary, who has given us Jesus Christ and all the heavenly host and the whole of Christendom and commit other evil deeds, end quote. So that's just a sort of flavor for Pfeffercorn's polemical style. Anyway, all of this was leading up to Pfefferkorn's kind of big moment, that campaign to confiscate Germany and all of Europe's Talmuds. Now, I discuss the Talmud in more detail in the interview and discussion with Ari Lam in this episode, but I'm just going to go over some basics. The Talmud is more than just a very important book for religious Jews. It is rather the embodiment of the Jewish people in a book. Each page will have different threads of commentary and text, some of it reflecting what was known as the oral tradition versus sort of the written tradition that was written down in in the Torah, But other things are commentary and commentaries on commentaries and practical discussions of like what Jews need to do to adopt to the world in diaspora when there is no temple after it has been destroyed. Okay, so technically, the Talmud, we should say, remains unfinished because you could maybe add in the future new commentaries. And it represents also the full body of Jewish law and its juridical tradition. Okay, so now we have to ask, how does a convicted thief and a recent convert, and somebody who really doesn't have any credentials as a rabbi or a scholar of 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 the Talmud. How does he get his ideas put into practice? Well, he was, of course, helped by the Dominicans who had adopted him after his conversion. But Pfefferkorn was also a charmer, and in this respect, he focused on befriending Maximilian's sister Cunegonde von Bayern, the widowed Duchess of Bavaria, and she just loved Pfefferkorn's anti-Jewish writings. And after you know getting to know you, kind of worming his way into the court of Maximilian. It's Kunigund who arranges an audience with her brother Maximilian I, and the meeting was a success. And less than a month later, the Padua mandate is issued. Now, for Pfefferkorn, this was life-changing. He not only persuaded the emperor to ban the Talmud and other Jewish books, but Maximilian placed Pfefferkorn in charge of enforcing his decree And here we once again see another example of his low character, because while collecting these various holy books, he also offers the wealthier Jewish communities an opportunity to pay him off in order to spare them. So Pfefferkorn is profiting from the persecution of his former people. Now, all was going according to plan for Pfefferkorn and the Dominicans, but there was a hitch. The German Jewish community petitioned their representative in the church, the Archbishop of Mainz, Oriel von Gemmingen, and in turn... Von Gemmingen persuades Maximilian to appoint a special committee to study Pfefferkorn's charges to sort of check his work. So it's true that there is a long tradition of anti-Semitism in medieval Europe, no doubt about it. But there was another tradition. It comes from St. Augustine, along with other jurists of the Roman Empire that considered Jews to be citizens and deserving of protection and equality. And this argument was that Judaism was an earlier version in some ways of Christianity. Augustine and others wouldn't go so far as to say that Jews got it right. They'd still think that Christianity is the way to go, but they point out that you know, Jesus was a Jew. And in this respect, the persecution of the Jews was not only wrong, it was unnecessary because in their view, Jesus would eventually return. And then, you know, when that happened, the Jews would see the error of their ways and realize that he was the Messiah the whole time. Okay, I don't want to, you know, spend too much more time getting into sort of these arcane (laughs) theological discussions. Okay, now I should say this Augustinian tradition, largely rejected by Maximilian, Cunigar, the Dominicans, Pfefferkorn, etc. But in this period, there was a guy by the name of Johannes Reuchlin. He was a jurist and a theologian, and he was about to join the battle over the Talmud. Reuchlin is important, as he was one of the experts assigned to evaluate Pfefferkorn's claims, along with other theologians and jurists at the behest of Bishop Gemmingen. And initially, we should say, Pfeffercorn hoped to enlist Reuchlin in his cause, but he was soon disappointed. Now, Johannes Reuchlin ended up being the lone dissenter in this committee of sages, but he was a very powerful writer and a very powerful thinker. And he manages to get Maximilian to rescind the Padua mandate. He argued in that Augustinian tradition that Jews living in the empire were subject to the same protections as any other citizen. And he argued that Germany in particular had much to gain from Jewish texts. For example, he advised that every German university include two professors of Hebrew. Reuchlin himself was speaking from experience. He had learned Hebrew and, for that matter, Kabbalah, which is a sort of Jewish mystical practice, from one of the great rabbis of Rome. Ari Lam and I talk about that as well in the discussion. Now, Reuchlin was particularly appalled at the ignorance of Pfefferkorn. And one can see why. Pfefferkorn was no rabbi. He was not a theologian. You know, he was a thief who converted and got lucky. And in this sense, Pfefferkorn was kind of a prop for the Dominicans. He was a clever man, a charmer, and he did have a good instinct for court politics in the 16th century, but he was no match for Reuchlin or any other serious scholar when it came to actually talking about what these texts said and how to interpret them. At this point, we should say that Pfefferkorn is very angry. He not only had his policy reversed in less than a year— but he also lost a key source of income in his kind of Talmud extortion racket. And in this dawn of the printed page, Pfefferkorn dashed off the first pamphlet in what would be known as the War of the Books. Now, that first pamphlet, Hanspiegel, or Hand Mirror, it just assassinated Reuchlin's character. He accused Reuchlin of being in the pay of the powerful Jewish community. Sound familiar, by the way? We hear that all the time. He claimed Reuchlin was a fraud who didn't really know Hebrew and that he himself had pursued a heresy by defending the Talmud. Reuchlin would clap back, and he wrote something called the Augenspiegel, which translates into reading glasses. And here I'm going to borrow this quip from Dr. Henry Abramson, who's fantastic. You should go on YouTube. He gives lectures on Jewish history. They're very good. And what he said was that this was a sort of taunt of fecker corn. You think I need a mirror? Well, you need reading glasses. All right. Anyway, to kind of give you a flavor of this, this is just quote this line from Roikland. I think it's pretty good. Quote, the Talmud was not composed for every blackguard to trample with unwashed feet and then to say that he knew all of it. End quote. So this back and forth continues until 1521. At one point, Roikland's followers release a satiric book of fake letters from Pfefferkorn and his Dominican patrons called Letters from Obscure Men. It's a play on Reuchlund's book Letters from Famous Men in this period, which were sort of correspondence from some of the top intellectuals and theologians of Europe, supporting his position that the Talmud was not really a heresy. But this Letters from Famous Men is, is interesting because it's, it's the 1500s, but it is a kind of, you know, you could say a long predecessor to like a spy magazine or something like that, because they would brutally mock the anti-Talmud movement. They accused various theologians and priests of visiting prostitutes being unable to control their bowels. I swear to God, that's really in there. as going through it. And this kind of mockery, you know, anyway, it got, it got quite an audience, again, because this is sort of the dawn of the printed word. And so it was very easy to produce these pamphlets and they got all around and there were efforts to try to ban the letters from obscure men and find out who wrote it and put them in jail it was a big controversy. So this battle of the books was not always limited to words. There were physical clashes between the supporters of Pfefferkorn and the Dominicans and Reuchlin. And at one point, I would say some of the followers of Reuchlin were killed by one of these Dominican mobs. Reuchlin himself was driven from his home, and he had to live out the rest of his life teaching Hebrew and Greek at a kind of far-off university. And Pfefferkorn's last pamphlet, we should say, went further than he did before. He urged the entire Catholic Church in Rome to expel Jews from the Holy Roman Empire, which would have been like the Inquisition, but worse. But it's an interesting thing. This is in 1521. He had basically lost favor at that point with the elites. And even anti-Semitic theologians like Erasmus at the time quipped that Pfefferkorn was a miscreant Jew and now a miscreant Christian. His last pamphlet, in that sense, fell on deaf ears. Reuchlin would die in 1521, and Pfefferkorn expired the following year. Okay. so what does this all have to do with today? Well, today there is no serious threat to Jewish texts. But there is a threat to the Jewish state. In the Middle Ages, as a jew converts were pawns for the church to spread lies about the Talmud and other things. In 2024, the Asa jews are not converts to Christianity. They are, though, you could say, converts in a sense to the quasi-religion of left-wing social justice activism. And I want to play another clip here from another Jewish Voice for Peace testimonial. And this woman explains how her commitment to anti-colonialism, ultimately led her to anti-Zionism.
1: Studying women and gender studies and sociology, I had all of these professors who taught us about anti-colonial resistance, uh, professors who taught us about US colonialism in Puerto Rico, professors who taught us about um, Western Sahara and Kashmir and Puerto Rico and made the connection to Palestine. And it was crystal clear that you couldn't oppose colonialism, racism, and imperialism only in some places, but be okay with it in Palestine.
0: So the intellectual godfather of these 21st century as a Jews is a former professor named Norman Finkelstein.
2: Immediately as the war began, I started to demonstrate outside the Israeli consulate, right off 42nd street. I was out there every day, every night, and I had a big poster which read, this son of survivors of the Warsaw Ghetto, Auschwitz and Majdanek, will not be silent. Israeli Nazis stop the Holocaust in Lebanon. I did manage to get all of that on one poster. So this
0: was a clip from American Radical, as a documentary about Finkelstein's life it was made in 2009. And as he was explaining, his obsession with Israel begins in 1982 during the Lebanon War. I played that clip because... While one hears this atrocious line about Israel being a Nazi state all the time today, unfortunately, sadly, back then Fogelstein, you could say, was a pioneer. Comparing Israel to the Third Reich was something one might hear, I guess, at a weather underground meeting or on Egyptian state radio, but you wouldn't hear it in any kind of respectable outlet or the corridors of power. It was a bridge too far. There were still many people alive who who survived the Holocaust. And this was just such a slur that it it was really Finkelstein, and as I said, was one of the earliest people to sort of start really doing that. Anyway, today, this comparison of Nazis and Israelis is a core part of Finkelstein's performance. Here he is shouting down a student at one of his speeches who asked him why he compared Zionist students to the architects of the Holocaust
2: on the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising and it's precisely and exactly because of the lessons my parents taught me and my two siblings that I will not be silent when Israel commits its crimes against the Palestinians and I consider nothing more despicable than to use their suffering and their martyrdom to try to justify the torture, the brutalization, the demolition of homes that Israel daily commits against the Palestinians. And
0: here he is in November during a debate with Yours Truly at the Comedy Cellar claiming that Gaza is a
2: concentration camp. Knowing as I do the situation in Gaza, I couldn't find it in me to condemn the actions of those concentration camp victims.
0: Now, I just want to say, and you can watch the debate if you'd like, on the substance, Finkelstein is, of course, dead wrong. There are shopping malls and luxury hotels in Gaza. Billions of dollars in humanitarian aid has poured into the strip since the 1990s before Israel forcibly withdrew its soldiers and settlers from that land in 2005. And much of that aid has been stolen by Hamas for its war machine. So to compare the conditions of Gaza to Auschwitz or Dachau, is an act of moral and historical illiteracy. I will leave it there. But leaving those facts aside, we should say that Trinkelstein is a gift to the enemies of the Jews. After all, a Gentile who would traffic in this toxic analogy that the world's only Jewish state is the modern-day Third Reich would be rightly labeled an anti-Semite. But a Jew, a child of Holocaust survivors, well, that is something entirely different. What's more, if Israel is the Nazi state that Finkelstein claims, well, can you really blame the Palestinians for their bloodlust, for their massacre of October 7? I mean, as I see it, if there were Jews of the Warsaw Ghetto, in my view, had license to do whatever they could to try to stop the Nazis. So I'm pointing this out. It's very important to understand that it's not just, it hurts my feelings to say that Israel is like the Nazis. There's a real implication of it. And in this sense... You could say Finkelstein is following in the footsteps of Pfefferkorn, who brandished his credential as a former Jew to slander the Talmud, just as Finkelstein brandishes his credential as the son of Holocaust survivors to slander Israel. And these libels matter. They justify, they rationalize, and they incite atrocities, large and small. Jews do not learn black magic from the study of Talmud, but nonetheless millions of Europeans believed that they did for centuries. Israel does not target Palestinian children. Hamas endangers them by shooting rockets from schools and mosques. But nonetheless, millions of people around the world today believe that Israel does. The anti-Semites of the Middle Ages needed Azad jews to credentialize the lies that justified their pogroms and expulsions. Today, Hamas and its allies in Iran need the Aza-Jews to persuade the Hague, European governments, and the White House to delegitimize Israel's right to self-defense. Now, the silver lining is that just as in Pfefferkorn's time, today there are also righteous Gentiles like Johannes Reuchlin.
2: Who are we, who are they really fighting? It's a group of cowards. They hide in tunnels. They hide behind civilians. They attack, kill, and mutilate children, women. And they do that, stop talking about proportion on that. They shot their best shot on October 7th, and they would have taken more lives if they couldn't do that, but they couldn't do it.
0: That was Pennsylvania Democratic Senator John Fetterman addressing the Orthodox Union this month. He has been a voice of moral clarity inside a Democratic Party that has flirted with the anti-Zionism of the squad and others since 2018 or so. And there are many more like John Fetterman who are standing up to those who demonize our safe haven. So the next time you see a member of our tribe with a ceasefire now button on her lapel blocking traffic and chanting about a Palestine from the river to the sea, think of Johannes Fappercorn. Know that there is a long tradition of converts who credential the libels of our enemies. But there is also a tradition of righteous Gentiles who have debunked those libels, even of those repeating them, tell us they are testifying to these lies as a Jew. Welcome back to the reeducation, our fourth time guest, the chief rabbi of the reeducation, the boss of Soul Shop Studios, and a gaon of American Jewry. Rabbi Ari Lam, I could not think of a better guest to have in these troubled times. Thank you so much for coming back. I am beyond excited to be
3: here and there is nothing I take more seriously than my chief rabbinate role here.
0: Well, let me tell you, <laughs> we've been texting and this is going to be I hope a very important conversation. So I want to start off with something that is in the news right now, which is which will lead us into our dive into history. And that is we've there are tunnels apparently under the Chabad headquarters in Brooklyn and I mentioned this. It was a bit of a story in New York, but I mention it now because if you go online, you will find lots of social media accounts and millions of people, impressions of these slanders saying that these were tunnels for child sex trafficking. And I was reminded of Simon of Trent, which is the origin, if you want, of what is known as the blood libel. And that's why I am glad that we have our historian chief rabbi here so first of all, maybe just talk for a second, like we are seeing some of these ancient hateful tropes about Jews kind of really explode, especially since October 7th. So maybe just sort of talk about what we know about the Chabad situation and then why it, in some ways I see a parallel, I don't know if you see it, but to this infamous history of the Jewish community around Trent, you know, abducting the boy allegedly and, you know, for his blood and so forth. Yeah. So
3: first of all, let's start with with Chabad. So this is one of those cases Chabad, where. Chabad, by the way, is
0: the Lubavitch ultra Orthodox sect. We should say it is a global movement and it has a very strong presence in the United States, of course.
3: This is one of those cases where the. I, I do want to acknowledge at the top that, you know, this is a, a matter in many respects that kind of brings deep pain to the. Chabad movement, and I am a huge fan of the Chabad movement. I think they're wonderful, and and I think more importantly, they're just very philosophically interesting. And so, but at the same time, as this is like a very serious matter, it also should have been like hilarious and produced just like endlessly awesome gifs and memes, and like this, like this should have been something we could laugh about for years, and then the anti Semites and pizza gators came and ruined it, and. <laughs> I'm kind of I'm kind of in a place now where I'm like, I'm not letting the anti-Semites take this from me because I want to make Teenage Mutant Ninja Hasidim jokes like for (laughs) for the next year. And I'm not letting these idiots ruin
0: that. So we should say this is a sect within the Chabad that thinks that Rabbi Schneerson, who died, what, a few years ago, at least. Right.
3: Yeah. So there is a live
0: they're like the Tupac Shakur truthers of the Chabad movement, by the way the best comparison, yeah. so he keep, there's hey, a whoops coming out with record, he keeps, I keep hearing his exactly. songs in the club, you know, what's going on? Rabbi Listen, he, is really alive, right.
3: This is DJ Khaled, just another one. He's another just he's one. dropping bangers. <laughs> yeah. There's a wonderful thread about this on X by, by Kilov, K-I-L-O-V-H, that breaks this whole thing down. I highly recommend it to anyone who wants to learn what's going on from an insider perspective, but that is written in a really accessible and clear way. But just to really break it down, kind of the shortish version. So the Chabad Chabad Lubavitch is a Hasidic community and a wonderful group of people, and kind of we'll break that down. But essentially, the all the drama takes place in a building called 770, which is its street address, and in New York. And 770 was the. Home of the not the most recent Lubavitcher Rebbe, who's the head, the spiritual head of the Chabad movement, but his predecessor was his home, and it became the headquarters of of the of the most recent Lubavitcher Rebbe. And so, because in Hasidism, there's a great deal of importance placed on cleaving to a spiritual master kind of, you know, in a, a, which in the Hasidic parlance is called the Rebbe, because there's a great deal of emphasis placed on that. So you can imagine and understand that the place where the Lubavitch Rebbe made his, his home, his synagogue, and his headquarters would be a place of very great importance to the Chabad Hasidim. Now, for context, Chabad kind of originates in a small town, I want to say in, be- I think in Belarus, and it's a relatively... Kind of, it's not a huge group of Hasidim Like in in terms of like objective terms, if you, certainly if you compare it to groups today. But its founder of shneir Zalman of Liadi, who's kind of a you know 19th century figure, who's a genius and a, and a, and, a, and a mystic, a Talmudist, and a philosopher of of great note. He has really interesting thoughts on the origins of the scientific revolution. Like really, like a penetrating thinker. Someone it's worth engaging with if you don't care about Jewishness at all. But in any event, he's he kind of founds this group and they persist. You know, it's a serious group that persists eventually due to pressures from communism and the Bolsheviks from the east and the Nazis from the west. The community is is torn apart, decimated and under a great deal of pressure. And for a variety of reasons that we don't get in, need to get into now, they end up moving to New York, relocating to New York now. Once they get to New York, it's a this is a small group of people like they can all fit inside in a a small apartment in like Brooklyn. And that's 770. And it's there that when the most recent Lubavitcher Rebbe takes over, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, he kind of articulates this vision to a pretty small group of people that says we are going to completely revitalize not just our own Hasidic community, which was what a lot of communities, not just Hasidic, a lot of Jewish communities that had kind of fled from Europe and come to the U.S. were intent on doing. We're not just going to revitalize our own community. We're going to to revitalize and revolutionize Jewish life across the globe. And wherever there's a Jew that we can find, we are going to, try and provide them with as many opportunities to live a rich Jewish life as we can in a way that's that that is loving, elevating, non-judgmental, and and is this maximally. where we get the like
0: if every Jew observes the Sabbath at the same time? Or is that so it? the
3: so the so Chabad is drawing very much upon those kinds of sources and that energy that actually it really matters that every single Jew participate in some meaningful way. And if you're like, you know, most, you know, <laughs> For many Jews who are are not Hasidic or not Orthodox, Chabad Hasidism is is their kind of main contact, certainly with the Hasidic world, maybe with the Orthodox world, and maybe even with Jewishness at all. And I think what people, what what many people report, and this is kind of their reputation, they're just warm, loving, giving, sacrificing, non-judgmental, but deeply mission-driven people. And by the Um, way,
0: for our non-Jewish audience, I your your host here is not a not a particularly observant jew but i have been to chabad for various high holidays because they will welcome anyone to participate they will invite you to shabbat there's a guy named rabbi levi shemtov in washington who is a beloved figure not just among the jews of washington but among everybody he's a you know and and you know you look at him he looks like an orthodox jew but he speaks like a modern and you know he he has he was you know, I remember when he got his this is how old I am when he got his palm pilot, but he could put in this every Sabbath. And when it started, he was like, you know, normal. Anyway, my point is, is that that, that this idea of welcoming people into their community, that's, you know, it's a, it, that that really does happen. Now, I
3: want to kind of for context, like right now, there are hundreds, hundreds of Chabad centers and and institutions across the globe, like. You can go anywhere, and you could go to, you know, Sri Lanka, Nairobi, you could go to Johannesburg, you could go to Paris, you could go to Los Angeles, you could go to New York City. Anywhere in the globe that you go, from the most populated places to the most remote places, you will find a Chabad center there that is staffed by a Chabad couple or a couple of people who are there because a Jew might show up and might need help and might need elevation and inspiration. Now, this massive, and it's decentralized, like it's not run by like a pope, right? This massive network of schools, communal institutions, summer camps, educational institutions, which is like, a, I mean, a marvel in Jewish history. It's one of the great, like, you know, eight wonders of the world, like the seven wonders of the world, but for Jewish history, it's one of the real wonders of the world. None of that existed when the previous Lubavitch Rebbe took over. This was the vision that he articulated. And... As he built this from scratch and and did it in a way where, I mean, the the greatest Jewish thinkers and some of the greatest non-Jewish thinkers in America and across the globe were coming to visit him to seek his advice, to engage with him, to to converse with him, to share ideas with him. My own grandfather of blessed memory was the president of Yeshiva University for 25 years, the greatest American Jewish orator in history, had a deep admiration for the Lubavitch Rebbe, Rabbi Schneerson. Um, he was this larger-than-life figure. And as a consequence, many of his followers, and, and he's not a unique figure in this respect, I'll articulate it in a moment, but many of his followers believed that if there was a candidate for someone who could be the Messiah in that generation it would be him now many great thinkers of the of the jewish past and certainly over the last 250 years have had followers who have thought this and they may even have thought this about themselves so this is not unusual in that like it's not unusual that you had people who thought a a living larger than life jewish theological religious figure might be the messiah in fact you could have multiple people whose followers could think that about them at the same time right so But uh, the Lubavitcher Rebbe's followers believed this about him. Then, in 1994, he died, and he left no successor. So, what now? The, The majority of his followers, at that point, did something on the spectrum from either saying, okay, guess he's not the Messiah, but his legacy is unparalleled, and therefore we have to do our best to preserve it, to... Look, we don't understand everything about the Messiah, or maybe he is the Messiah, so we don't wanna talk about it. But like either way, being in your face about messianism was like not it's not
0: how we're gonna be it's not how we're gonna be moving forward. That's the vast majority of Chabad. Vast majority. Now there's like, if you want to press them, they might give you some like, well, we don't really know, but it's
3: there Exactly. Okay. My 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 own sense is that there are there are more messianists there are more messianists in mainstream Chabad. Than you'd want, but there are far less than you'd fear. But again, it's not my. It's not. Okay. I don't mean this. As, I don't mean this is a judgment.
0: Then there's a. But, then there's a sliver. There's right. a. There's a radical sect.
3: Right. But the mainstream of Chabad is not talking about messianism in your face, and and many of them don't. You know, and many whatever. Then there's this small kind of splinter group of of people whose belief is a. The Lubavitcher Rebbe is, is the Messiah, is indeed the Messiah. He's either still alive or he's going to come back, whatever the case may be. We don't have to get into the metaphysics and theology of it now. But A, he's the Messiah. And B, we have to tell you about that, like really in your face. There's a whole flag. It's a yellow flag. You, you, you know, people may have seen it. A lot of these people are based in Israel, uh, and in particular in the city of Tzfat in the north of Israel. Uh, there's, a big yesh- there's a big yeshiva there where a lot of these people congregate. And because Chabad and Judaism in general is deeply decentralized, like there's no synod, there's no papacy, there's no you know council of elders, etc., it's very decentralized, uh, and Chabad is no exception. So the Rabbi left no successor. It's not even clear, even to me as as a non-Chabadnik, it's not even clear to me that anybody could have succeeded him. Like he was that that overwhelmingly influential and and larger than life. But what happened was there also was kind of like no succession plan for like okay now who owns or controls or leads or or administers the organs of Chabad right of Chabad and in particular this was this became an acute fight over the building 770 in New York because as noted you know that there's a a deep Hasidic affinity for. you know the spiritual master, and in the case of Chabad, with someone so 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 overwhelmingly charismatic and inspiring as that, you can imagine people. You know, his followers are very attached to his home and his synagogue and the place that he made his base of operations. So there's kind of like a dispute about who controls this place. The mainstream Chabad movement is administered by a, a def- diffuse and decentralized, but nevertheless existent group of leaders that are known as the Chabad movement or like the Chabad Lubavitch movement, but like people call them the Chabad movement, capital C, capital M, the Chabad movement. The courts have ruled that they own 770, but there is this kind of splinter group, the the Meshachistim, which is kind of like the Hebrew term. It means messianists, right? The the messianist splinter feels that they should own, that they're the bearers of the true legacy there, and they should own seven seventy. And so they've kind of like squatted there and made their place there. And the Chabad movement kind of like doesn't know what to do. This has been a legal dispute and an administrative dispute for many, many, many years. Now, the, what seems to have happened is the Messianist group, in addition to just like squatting there and kind of operating as like a, like a, like a Jewish version of like a Jewish Hasidic version of a gang, right? Or like Occupy like,
2: seven seventy.
3: Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Okay. So they have also they also have are, are under the the belief that it was Lubavitcher Rebbe's desire that 770 should be expanded. And and in any event, it actually is a practical matter that 770 is not large enough for the many, 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 many people who want to go there to pray, to make, you know, to kind of make a pilgrimage, quote unquote, to visit, to be inspired or whatever. It's just not big enough. And so there was this sense that we should expand the synagogue from the basement of seven seventy where it currently is to the adjoining building, which also has like a a, an unused Chabad mikvah, which I guess for for non Jewish listeners, the closest thing I could explain to what a mikvah is a ritual bath or like like a baptismal site. It's not baptism, but like that's the easiest corollary that you could write. So Only for uh, women. Well, for men as well. Men, men as well in go the, to the mikvah? Men as well, in both oh, in the Hasidic tradition and outside, go to it. Depend, th- There are different traditions about how often, at what interval, and it's certainly not required in the same... Like, there are different reasons you go to the mikvah, but okay. yeah, it's... But anyway, so this kind of splinter group decided we're going to expand the synagogue to the adjoining ritual, unused ritual bath. Now, we don't have permission to do this. We don't have the ability to approve this, and we certainly just... Can't make the decision on our own. We're not the owners of this place, but who cares? Let's just do it. So they started knocking down the wall and between one basement and the next. So it's not like a tunnel like underneath it, but, but like started knocking down the building, one the wall from one building to the next. The Chabad movement, the owners of 770, were like, okay, we got to shut this chute down. And so they brought in construction trucks to fill it up, to fill that hole up with cement. And the messianists, these kind of like teenage agitators, We're like, you know, we're not getting kicked out. We're going to fight this. They start making trouble, and they start trying to prevent the cement from filling it in because we're fulfilling the Rebbe's legacy, and we're fulfilling his wishes, and this is a good thing anyway. Uh, So they start just causing tremendous trouble, and so the Chabad movement rightly calls the police. The police come, and then kind of like both from... If you care about the Chabad movement as I do, it's a very sad situation. Like you don't want fighting and disunity and and disharmony in a place that that whose whose biggest contribution to the world was unity, Jewish unity and and light and inspiration. So it's sad. At the same time, it's also hilarious. hilarious. It's also hilarious. It's also funny, (laughs) right? Okay. And, And by the way, the best thing about it is like even had they successfully expanded, like. There are so many people who want to go to 770. Expanding the synagogue from one basement to like part of the other basement was the equivalent of like that episode of The Office where Michael Scott has his flat screen TV and he like pushes it right. one inch closer to the wall and like now the room is bigger, right? Like, right. That, Best case scenario, that's what you're getting. And meanwhile, you have the cops chasing down these teenage agitators who are like piecing out of the building, Home Alone two style, like crawling out. Like this is this is amazing. It's comedy gold but yeah. then you had these like psycho pizza gators turn this into a whole like okay so that's what
0: that place. okay so 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 that we, we spent 20 minutes on and i'm glad by the way yeah. we have got the real story <laughs> out Be, no, well i'm serious because we're going to get into a very dark topic right now which yeah. is it feels like we're living in the 16th century with this stuff because if you look at what these demons online are saying it is right out of the middle ages that this is for sex trafficking And it is one of the most identifiable Jewish, you know, groups, a Jewish location. And this stuff is really dangerous. Now, I'm not I'm not comparing America in 2024 to, you know, Germany in 1509 or something. But I do want to kind of talk about how we have seen, especially on social media, the almost like revival of. Some of these ancient, hateful, anti-Jewish kind of slanders and libels. So who was, talk about Simon of Trent, which is, I think most of our listeners probably wouldn't know about. Yeah. Okay. So Simon
3: of Trent is a young boy, three years old, who, who lives in the Bishopry of Trent in... I believe this is northern. This is northern Italy, like under the, like under the, the Holy Roman Emperor, and he is found dead. And normally, like you know, in medieval Europe, for a young boy to be found dead would not be abnormal. But along comes a Franciscan preacher, a zealous deeply anti-Jewish Franciscan preacher, Bernadina Feltre. And he comes along and says that this is not just any dead child. This is a child who's been murdered by the Jews. And the reason that he's been murdered by the Jews is because the Jews needed his the Jews needed his blood for ritual purposes because Jews you in order to perform some of their rituals, need the blood of Christian children. And this, I mean, is a complete fantasy. It's rooted in nothing. It's pure anti-Jewishness. But the it catches on, and it right. kind of catches the so imagination. So what year is Simon of
0: Trent? So Simon of Trent is... Simon of Trent is killed in 1475. Okay, now this is important because it's after Gutenberg. So this means that you now have... The ability to print all kinds of flyers and pamphlets and illustrations of Jews that you didn't really have before. Yes, we had books and scrolls, and but you had to hand transcribe it. So we we often forget, but this is like the internet of the 15th century is Gutenberg's press, and it is the beginning of mass literacy and that is how these slanders can spread like wildfire in a way that maybe you couldn't before where we're much more reliant on like, well, you know, I heard, and there's a guy who said this. Now, if you have an illustration of, you know, Jews fornicating with pigs and all kinds of horrible things, which by the way, sprouts up as soon as we get Gutenberg, you know, well, there it is. And that's exactly. So this is super important that this is coming at this moment. This is why it's, just tend to say that the Simon of affair is the kind of origin of what we call the blood libel. Is that right? Yes. Okay.
3: And so this fantasy that Jews hungry for Christian blood, for Gentile blood, are going around murdering children becomes, it, it kind of captures the popular imagination. It becomes a meme. Yeah, exactly. It
0: becomes a because meme. Because so you see it in illustrations. You see it in pamphlets. You see it all over the place. It becomes this thing. Now, Now, careful for the Jews. They're going to steal your kids and drink their blood and yada, yada. yada.
3: Now, the entire Jewish community of Trent is arrested, men and women, and the Christian authorities start to torture them and extract extract forced confessions from them. Yes. And so (laughs) what ends up happening is the Pope sends down. I mean, this this becomes like a just a massive problem because, I mean, Jews are. I mean, Jews are now in in horrible, horrible danger in the Holy Roman Empire. So the pope, the the, pape, the pope sends down a, basically a crew like a representative to investigate what's going on, and the local authorities, particularly the local bishop, are furious because they're like, "You're ruining, like, you're gonna ruin our our attempt to get to the truth." And you only care about the Jews because you're
0: interfering in our investigation. You're right. Exactly. Like,
3: exactly. Like, this is like a NYPD FBI turf war. Right. And (laughs) you like you only care about like the Jewish money and you want to protect your, you know, your tax base for your aristocrats and blah, 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 blah. But the Pope kind of comes down and sends an investigator and there starts to be these like coming out these like competing. Accounts of what happened. Some vindicating, some vindicating the the blood libelists, the people who are, and it's called the blood libel. I mean, as you said, for it's a libel about Jews that they want or they, they thirst for Gentile blood. So this like, there's some reports that come out that try to validate and vindicate the people accusing the Jews of with this blood libel, and then there are others who are not precisely dismissing it but are reaffirming that the Jews that the Jews are to be protected and eventually what happens is you have in 1478 you have this papal bull that's issued that finds that the Trent the the authorities in Trent hadn't precisely done anything wrong but it refuses to come to a conclusion about whether the Jews actually did this and then just reiterates that the Jews are are under the protection of the papacy and they shouldn't be summarily killed but what, but this does nothing to dispel this widespread popular notion that the Jews are like somehow hungry for, for Gentile blood. And in fact, the, the, local, the local bishop in, in Trent, Bishop Hinderbach, tries to have Simon of Trent canonized, become a saint. And there is, <laughs> what ends up happening as a consequence of this is obviously lots of Jews are killed and tortured. But yes. the larger implication here. Is that what it exposes? Is this kind of this rot, like this poison, at the heart of the European soul that is deeply ready to believe anything horrible about well, the Jews? Well, this gets into something Jews. called
0: Christology. Am I right about that?
3: Well, right. Well, meaning that yes, yes, and no. Meaning okay. yes in the sense that this is that that the blood libel, the language that it uses, the tropes that it uses, the the authorities who are driving it, the, the, the mechanisms by which Jews are being rounded up, arrested and tortured and killed are all deeply rooted in Christianity. Right. But at the same time, it is, I think it would be a mistake to say, well, this is a Christian problem. And it's, and therefore, if we are to, if we were to eliminate Christianity and its influence, from our society, we would be able to eliminate the impetus for the blood libel. And the reason I say this is because I kind of, it's, it's actually helpful to draw a straight line from the blood libel of Simon of Trent in the 15th century to what's called the Damascus Affair in
0: 1840. You fast, Okay, let's talk about that really quickly, but I want to well, yeah. stay in the 15th and 16th century for just a sec.
3: But we'll go right. We can go back. Go, to it, let's but, go back. Go to the Damascus yeah, affair. Okay. Really, really quickly. The Damascus affair is like 400 years later in secular France. France has a like many European powers has a presence in in the Holy Land. And on February 5th of 1840, you have this Sardinian monk of the French Capuchin order who, along with his Muslim servant, Ibrahim Amara, disappear and they're found dead. And the the local French consul, Comte Ratimentin, very very quickly accuses the Jewish community of having basically Edward Scissorhands them for ritual purposes. Like a, he accused a Jewish barber of a barber of like slitting their throats and needs their blood and blah blah blah. And the, I mean, this results in a in arrest of several Jews. It results in I I mean it results in this like horrific persecution of Jews and you have this moment where the rest of Europe and not just like England Russia as well reacts this and is like "Whoa, whoa, whoa aren't you guys like the secular French like haven't you purged Christianity and the entire energy behind the blood libel from your ranks and yeah. then
0: you try to change the calendar.
3: Come on. Yeah. Like, haven't you expunged this from your national personality? And yet there's this real sense that like meaning and there's one read of it, which is like, well, you can take, you know, France out of Catholicism, but you can't take the Catholicism out of France. And this is just like the same old Catholic spirit and blood libel. But all we should over again. say
0: we I, I want to make sure that we get this point. We'll get into a little bit later. It's not like there's a singular Catholic correct correct we should make that very clear that it's like and and that's and that's it's like the 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 catholic church the popes over the years have done bad things to the jews particularly during the holocaust so i don't want to i mean we all know this but there have been good popes there have been it's not all mm -hmm. one or the other let's make that yeah and that's and like that's where we should go next my my point is
3: my point is actually precisely that meaning like there is this Tendency. There are other tendencies and we should focus on them because they're just as important. But there is this tendency in the in the human soul and in the Western soul. And it takes a very specific form that sees Jews as both a convenient, like a convenient scapegoat and uh, as an easy target. And that is ready to believe any story about Jews, no matter how heinous. In fact, the more heinous, the better, because it allows us to to pin the entirety of evil on this one people that's different than us, and it's true in deeply Catholic, in deeply Catholic Holy Roman Empire and the deeply Catholic Holy Roman Empire, and it's true in deeply secular 19th century France.
0: Right. Okay. So, that's Simon of Trent. I like that story because it gives us a kind of, you know, origin of the blood libel, which we hear a lot about, but it's good to know the story. We also should point out that in the same period is the series of forced conversions and the auto de phase of the Spanish Empire, leading, of course, to the expulsion of 1492, which was a terrible thing. And even afterwards, the, the, the Jews that converted, the, the, known as the Moranos, were persecuted following the expulsion. So it wasn't enough to just convert at a certain point. They were still trying to, you know, they were still obsessed in some ways with Jewish blood. And this is the context for the main event which is the war against the Talmud. So I want to defer to you. I'm going very gingerly here. We're deferring to our rabbi, the expert. But as I understand it, we have these libels. We have Gutenberg. And there is an interest in Kabbalah, in the Talmud, among the Catholics, among these ver- the people in charge, some for good reasons, some for you know, very anti-Semitic reasons, and suddenly we see a kind of obsession because now you have to see the church is obsessed with dealing with the new technology of printing and in that they are approving or not approving certain books. This is a normal thing at this point. And then question then arises, should the Jewish oral tradition, the Talmud, be banned? Is this book leading the Jews, if you will, to do these terrible things to christian children is that right well yeah well well
3: attacks on the talmud go back to the go back to the 13th century at least
0: okay okay, but the
3: printing press does make this right it makes it more of an international issue and it gives it more of a popular drive you had to
0: hand write it out and if you've ever seen a a a, a torah scroll it's it's a it's a very time-consuming process these were prized by jewish communities that were very expensive once you have the ability to print the talmud it's a game changer, right? I mean, it, 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 it's cheaper. It's like, you know, more people can get it. You know, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a huge difference. And by the way, the obsession with like banning books is very, it's like that. That's very much of the moment as opposed to before when, yeah, there were, there were people who were interested in the Talmud, but it's a little different anyway. So let's talk about with that in mind, a mediocre Jewish thief accidentally becomes part of the history of our people and the history of Europe. His name is Johannes Pfefferkorn. Who is Johannes Pfefferkorn?
3: Johannes Pfefferkorn is what I would call the most underrated villain in Jewish history. The man who came closest to wiping out the Jewish people since who came closer to doing it than anyone since Haman in the book of Esther. And yet, nobody knows his name, which I think is an appropriate ignominious fate for him.
0: And weirdly kind of an accidental figure in history. The Gerald Ford of enemies <laughs> of the Jewish people. <laughs> right, exactly,
3: exactly. Johannes Pfefferkorn is this like, as you said, deeply mediocre person. He's part of the Jewish we community. Sh- yeah, we should say he's a Jew. Yes, first. yes, exactly. So he's So he's this like, Guess, deeply, medi- like, deeply mediocre person. And
0: we're in um, Germany now, by the way.
3: Yes. We, so. Nuremberg, he, I think. Yeah, he was likely, right. It's likely. We're not sure, but it's likely that he was born in Nuremberg. He, he's a thief. He's convicted of burglary. He then, and he's imprisoned. Eventually, he gets out of prison in the early 1500s and. Che-
0: he cheats the, uh, the hangman by conversion. Yeah exactly. He's a big thing at this time. There's a lot of
3: Yeah, and he he basically finding kind of finding himself on the outs with the Jewish community converts to Christianity. And this is not an unusual story in in kind of medieval early modern Europe. What is not unheard of but unusual, although unfortunately it happened far too often, was that Pfefferkorn not only converts to Christianity but makes it his, his life's goal to decimate and torment the people that he had rejected, the Jewish people. And he tries a whole bunch of different schemes. He tries to get the Jewish people expelled from the Holy Roman Empire. Well, it's, it's, before
0: yeah. we get there, that's, that's the final act of Pfefferkorn. Let's start off. Pfefferkorn is this mediocrity, but he's good at making friends. Yes. And one of those friends is the sister of Emperor Maximilian I. Now, this is a little confusing because technically, Europe is still under the dominion of the Holy Roman Empire, which is based, obviously, in Rome. Maximilian is, what would you say? He's like the regent for what we would say is Germany. Yeah. So, I mean, he's exactly. He's the Holy Roman Emperor Um, of Germany. Yeah, yeah. Well And like, then so- he then he gets the whole shebang a little bit later, but never right. goes. he never he never does like the Charlemagne move where he goes to Rome and you know devotes right. his life to the church, yada yada. No, but he but he's acknowledged to be he's the most powerful man in Europe at this. and and it, you could say a good guy to know. And his sister becomes, I don't know, really in like friends with Johannes Peppercorn. Is that fair to say? Like they they hang out. <laughs>
3: yeah, they become they become boys. And like, <laughs> and, like and like, that's the thing, like Pfefferkorn is like trying the he's it's so fascinating. He's like this. He, he basically is like this small town, like petty thief con man who's like trying all these like lower level schemes to get the Jews in trouble from expulsion to getting them declared as heretics, whatever. Nothing works. And the reason nothing works is because he always has. He always has the aristocrats of the Holy Roman Empire opposed him, not because the aristocrats liked Jews. It's not that the aristocrats cared, per se, qua the Jews, whether the Jews were expelled from the empire, whether they were declared heretics and killed and burned at the stake, etc. What they didn't want was to lose an easily extortable tax base. And so they're constantly opposing Pfeffercorns like, you know. Like harebrained, like rocking Bullwinkle villain level schemes to like get the If it don't make
0: dollars, it don't make sense.
3: Exactly. That's that's
0: the the bottom line.
3: Exactly. Casuals everything around me in the immortal words of our (laughs) friends in the Wu-Tang Clan. So the, so Feffercorn then comes up with a great idea. Or, I mean, a horrible idea, but what for him would have been a great idea. And he says, okay. And it's, by the way, this is the kind of thing, it's like so, it's so evil that were I not able to read his words from his journals with my own eyes and like see them?
0: Yeah. I would have assumed believe
3: it. It was like a bad movie plot. Yeah. He basically says, well, look, I can't expel the Jews and I can't get them tortured and killed, but I can get rid of them. How can I get rid of them? I can destroy everything that makes them Jewish. And the best way to do that is to take away the Torah what which is the catch-all jewish term for the religious and intellectual and philosophical and theological tradition that makes up judaism from you know from the talmud through the commentaries on the talmud the medieval right. well, and early modern codes
0: he says the only the Old thing Testament that they're allowed is to keep, okay
3: right the only thing that they're allowed to keep is whatever it is that will drive them towards christianity namely the bible we're going to have to give them you know our parts of the bible as well but they can keep their they can keep their they're Old Testaments, but that's it.
0: Okay, um, now I want to just stop. St- we got to just explain this for, for our leaders, read, our listeners. Many of there are a lot of them, I'm assuming, or I, I know a lot of them are not Jewish, so we'll, let's just talk about the importance of the Talmud, which is the sort of, mm-hmm. you could say it's the record of the oral tradition of, so there's a written tradition, which is the five books of Moses, and then there's an oral tradition, which was passed down, and finally it was transcribed, I guess, what, who were the first people to? It wasn't the Babylonian. Was it the ba- the first so, Talmuds were written in like what years? S- like
3: so, when you hear the term rabbi, the the original use of that term is to describe the people who are these sort of these wise teachers who are who are stewards of the oral tradition for how to interpret the Bible. Now bear in mind, now the the earliest rabbis can be found in like. First century BC, like the earliest people to use the term, to use the title rabbi, can be found in like first century BC, first century AD, what we would call, you know, Jews typically called CE, you know, first century BC slash AD land of Israel. And eventually these figures who are originally clustered in Judea, particularly in Jerusalem and its environs. And then eventually, after successive failed revolts against the Romans and the Romans, just, you know, kicking Jews out of Judea or and certainly out of Jerusalem, making Jerusalem officially Eudenrine, right, uh, basically free of their Jews, the the rabbinic, you know, the rabbinic figures and teachers emerge in the Galilee in the north of Israel, and round and they start to like compile all of these traditions together, both. Traditions about how to interpret the Bible, traditions about how Jews should behave in accordance with the Bible, but not necessarily right. interpreting, And all of these things are compiled together and edited and formulated into a coherent work in the, th- the early third century AD in the Galilee by a figure named Rabbi Judah the Prince, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, who's kind of like the recognized like religious kind of political leader of the Jews at the time, although there, Sanhedrin. they're the yeah, so, this, so the Sanhedrin had been, had been defunct since the destruction, oh, since shortly before the destruction of the that's temple. That's why we got the rabbi. But, 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 that is how, but you're right in the sense that that's how Jewish figures kind of conceptualize rabbinic authority moving forward. They're like the, the, the bearers of the legacy of the right. figures of the Sanhedrin. And we
0: don't have to get into too much detail here, but the, I want to just get some key points. One is that technically, I think this is the case, that it's a living document that you add commentaries to it if it meets the approval of enough rabbis, right? Well,
3: so what happens is you have like these massive traditions about how to interpret the Bible, about how to behave, about how to interpret statements about the Bible, about how to behave, and they're kind of swirling around. The earliest compendium of these texts is called the Mishnah, which is that third century Galilee. Eventually, there's you have commentary. So the Mishnah is, is sort of like a... I would almost put it, say it's like a companion piece to the Bible. It's, it is a commentary on the Bible, but it's not a direct like verse by verse commentary. It's like, here's how you should live as a Jew. You have to have read the Bible for any of this to make sense. But, but it's basically that. The Talmud represents kind of like the next several generations of rabbis, first in the land of Israel and then eventually and in parallel in Zoroastrian Persia and what we would today call Iran and Iraq
0: term the babylonian, the babylonian talmud right that's which is called the, the one that we talmud. consider to be the talmud today correct most part.
3: so all of these are like commentaries on the mishnah and the bible and other traditions and it's yeah, basically, commentaries on commentaries yeah commentaries on commentaries and so if deeply, you read like
0: a page yeah. of the talmud it looks like you're reading different lines of you know the paragraphs do not like go on the page like normal they're almost broken up in a sense so you're getting This is what this is what one rabbi said. This is another one. This is like, you know, the debate is it it is like a living document in that it encompasses a dialectic. You
3: could say. Right. And the Talmud, just in terms of like intellectual history, it is by far the most impressive intellectual document to come out of to come out of late antiquity. Just even in terms of like length. So like Justinian's code is 800,000 words. The Talmud, the Babylon, just the Babylonian Talmud. Is 1.8 million words. It is the only example of di- of dialectical discussion that comes out of the that comes out of the ancient world since Socrates and Aristotle. And in, and it's in many ways it's just so much richer in terms of its its reach, its scope, the the breadth and depth of topics that it's interested in than the 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 Aristotelian and Socratic and and Platonic traditions. It's just this massively and, interesting and the other thing work. Is
0: you could say if you compare it to say Islam it's this idea of the gates of ishtahad where you just can't you know we're no longer right. going to interpret when i say the talmud is a living document what it means is that it's like you apply it to the situations that are coming up now that may were not accounted for in when when the bible was you know revealed or written depending on your tradition but like the point is is that it's something that is a guide very much in the moment it's not just about some commentary on a commentary so that you know you have to perform it's like how do you deal with ransoms at times or how do you deal with all kinds of things and that's e- kind of the point the, e-
3: the easiest thing i would compare it to for like for for a person in the west to kind of understand what it is is it is a it's an example it's like a, the closest analog is the english common law tradition it's yeah, just
0: that's a good point it,
3: it just right. builds up over centuries and centuries with jurists applying precedents and using their own a combination of precedent and their own reasoning to build this tradition organically
0: from kind of, you know, from kind of the, the ground and the people up. And we, it's hard. It's so it, it, the reason this is really important is that we're getting to Pfefferkorn's kind of like brilliant diabolical scheme, which is to confiscate the tome. Yeah. So like, That's imagine... and by the way, when you do that, that is like an assault on the Jewish people that is exactly. taking away their it's not just like, oh, they, you don't have your books anymore, but you can still be Jews and just do this or that or whatever. It's like, that is a way of destroying the Jewish people. Maybe explain that. Like, how is it that, like, if I, if I outlaw the Talmud, I'm destroying the Jewish people? So imagine if, just to extend the English common law tradition. So, so by like, the, this is before the internet. So, if you get all the copies of it, you really would be. That's it. That's it. That's, yeah. that's what we're talking about.
3: So, imagine just to extend the English common law analogy. So like, you know, if you're like in 17th century England or even today, like English common law and it's, it's preservation of English liberties and what it means to be, what it means to be an upstanding citizen of England. Like that's what it means to be an Englishman. So imagine if you would, if somebody were to be able, were to have the power to come along and, find every single record of english common law every single copy of the magna carta every single copy of 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 every single judicial decision that had ever been made in the history of common law was able to actually literally confiscate every single copy and burn them in the town square and then say good luck being english from now on i mean it would be a it would be a national catastrophe absolutely it would, yeah. it would spell the end of english civilization
0: Right. But I just want to say, like, it's not like some small thing like, oh, you just don't have one of your books. It's not that that's it's no, it's literally.
3: We, we've yeah, that, yeah, it's literally what it means to be English. What it this is, what it means to be Jewish is to live with this tradition. And yes. in a time, as you said before, these things are readily available in print or like, whatever manuscript copies. And like, yes, like you have singular geniuses who can remember it all by heart. And in an earlier period, people's jobs were literally to remember it all by heart. But. I mean, you're you are inflicting a national catastrophe of unimaginable proportions on the Jewish people, and this is what Pfefferkorn proposes. So, he so, actually... so
0: let's sorry. So, Pfefferkorn, it's 1509, I think, or 1510. It's
3: 1509, when he succeeds in getting this implemented. Right.
0: Okay. So he's pushing now. <laughs> yeah. Through Maximilian's sister. Yeah. And it's like his argument is like because yeah that I, we started with Simon of Trent because I wanted to say what's in the air. Well, what's in the air is the nefarious Jews are plotting against us. What's the source of their power? Aha, it's their Talmud, right? Mm-hmm. That's kind of like, so he's pushing on a bit of an open door. Yep, exactly.
3: And he, li- he literally writes, he goes, therefore, in, 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 a, in a work of his called, a polemical work of his, I mean, they're all polemical works, called Mirror of the Jews, he writes, therefore, take the path of books away from them. Burn the books. Then it'll be that much easier to bring them to the path of truth. He basically says, look, you don't have to kill the Jews to kill the Jews. You just have to take away everything that makes them Jewish, and they'll disappear on their own. Yeah. And he, by the way,
0: he he presents himself at times we might say is a moderate for the 1500s in that he says, oh, you know, stop putting them on the rack. Uh, I'm not so sure about whether this blood libel thing is real. But let me tell you, if you really we, we can't have all these Jews, we've got to convert them to Christianity. This is the way to do it. You got I'm telling you, I'm giving you the inside info as an ex-Jew. this well, that's thing, the key. That's gotta, the key to
3: it, by the way. Yeah. he he he. He as a Jews this, right? Well, there you
0: go. That's the title of the episode. There you go. The history yeah. of the as a Jews.
3: Yes. Yeah, he as a Jews this, meaning he positions himself. And this, I mean, to me, like this is so familiar from contemporary faith, Like, like yeah. you can see this in contemporary figures. He says, look, as a Jew, now again, as a former Jew, but he very much parades around his Jewishness and Jewish knowledge, etc. He says, like, as it were, as a Jew. I can tell you that like, look, the blood libel stuff may be exaggerated, but I, but, but I'm only telling you that because what I'm also going to reveal to you is like the real problem with Jewishness, which is that they hate Jesus and they hate, and like, they hate Christians and they hate Gentiles and like everything they do is backwards and misanthropic and superstitious and blah, blah, blah. And so. What he's what he basically does is he says, like, as a Jew, I can reveal to you the real poison with the Jews, like the stuff that you believe is is wrong. And like, that's like an anti-Semitic trope. But I will tell you the truth.
0: Like, if you want to be a real, true, genuine yeah. anti-Semite, I can help you. Right now, we should say at this time, there are very important kind of factions within the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. I'm Thinking here of, I guess, what, the, uh, the Dominicans who, who backs him in Germany.
3: Yeah. So he has he ends up getting the backing of both of the Dominicans and the Franciscans. OK, so the um,
0: Dominicans and the Franciscans, which are these orders of monks, like what they're hearing from the ex-Jew. And, yes. <laughs> and they they say this guy is really on to something. He's also got Maximilian's sister. And so he convinces the emperor to ban the Talmud. 1509. Now, a hero emerges <laughs> in this story. Now we have to introduce another Johannes, Johannes Reuchlin, who is not part of the Franciscan and the Dominican tradition. He is a humanist. So who were the humanists and what is this fight going on right now in the in the church itself about?
3: Yeah. So this is like this also it's like my I really think like I really think like this is my favorite. This is my favorite episode in jewish history also that nobody knows about it's, it's such like, a great it's
0: a great story it's a it's, great story it's, 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 it's so, like so the first important. meme war it's fantastic
3: yeah it's so it's so so important so basically what happens is you have and by the way humanists it's not like there's a tendency to kind of like look back now on the humanists as if they were like not anti-christian but no serious historian no, thinks humanists bad, in like,
0: the 20th century means something completely different than what ex- it means it,
3: exactly humanists exactly.
0: in the 20th century are like these kind of like they're like unitarians they don't really believe in you know okay fine
3: right w- right so like back then humanists were like some of the most faithful what we would now call catholics like but at, at that, that point you just call christians right they were some of the most like faithful christians out there like real partisans of the church but um, they
0: were concerned also about corruption in the church they were tr- very about much the so influence of money in the church they, they, but they were they were, very they much were catholics so. yeah that's very much are. so and all of this was
3: like both downstream of and reinforced their attachment to what was essentially an academic program, an intellectual program called humanism. What yeah. humanism basically was, was a, was a reaction to the scholasticism of Aquinas uh, and, you know, the kind of the the medieval Christian academic tradition, which was very much rooted in 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 logic and specu- you know, in sort of
0: like uh, like
3: for, you, formal logic, that, how many angels
0: are on the head of a pin from the scholastic tradition?
3: Essentially, these are, these are right. like
0: these very esoteric debates that don't really affect the lives of everyday people, right? It's mm-hmm. fair to say,
3: right? Exactly, exactly. And so, what the humanists basically, m- more or less, said was, you need to look back at kind of like the the great achievements of the best of the human condition, and that and, and that is a way forward that is the best way to find the truth both in both in the you know kind of like the best and most virtuous examples of human achievement and pointing us forward towards what we can expect you know from from the future but more or less humanism just says like what you should be studying is not kind of the scholasticism of Aquinas but what you should be studying is like biblical languages you should be studying ancient civilizations in their writings what you should be doing is like mining the past for insights into the
0: human condition and and the humanists for the most part believed while they didn't think that the jews they didn't think the jewish religion was true in a sense they thought that they they were distinct from christianity and that it would be nice if they could see the light they revered in a lot of ways the jewish tradition and they saw judaism as you know the father if you will or the brother or the sibling of their faith. Is that fair?
3: Well, yeah. Meaning if you're, if you're like a Renaissance humanist, you're one of the things you're super interested in. If you're looking back towards the past and like the best of human action and and thought and writing in the past, one of the things you're most interested in is the early history of the Christian church. And in order to properly understand that early history, so the theory went, you actually need to understand it in its context. And in its context meant understanding for example the languages that the the members of the early church spoke so you need to actually so you need to actually know what's called koine greek right the 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 form of common greek in which the new testament is, is the christian bible is authored you need to know perhaps aramaic you need to know biblical hebrew you need to be able to read these texts in their original it's not enough just to rely on the the vulgate latin translation that saint jerome made like you know a thousand years ago we need to be able to actually read these texts translate them maybe even look at ancient manuscripts and see if and uh, you know and see if we can compare the vulgate to those translations so and you also have these and they're also like deeply focused on like moral philosophy like they actually want to know like how should you based on all of these learnings that we have what does that imply for how we should behave in the world as we know it and so, yeah, become, they become, a lot of the humanists end up becoming super interested in what, in what Judaism and Jewishness can tell them about the moral origins and cultural origins of the world that the humanists cared about. Namely, and also, also European society.
0: They, they, wanted, they, yeah. they were like, hey, Jesus was a Jew. Right. And they, they, they don't have a problem with that. So... Here, so 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 now we now let's get back to Roy Clinton for a second. Because I'm like, Clinton, by the way, like
3: that, like the rallying cry of the humanists is yeah. is in in is in Latin is ad fontis, right? Like we have to, which means back to the sources. Like that's their yes. academic, intellectual, pedagogical rallying cry. Like the answer to everything is back in the sources.
0: And by the way, I just want to say something. Both of these things are part of the story and tradition of Christianity. It's not all you know. Blood libels and, and and expulsions and you know medieval torture. It's not all of that. It's there's another side of it too. So yeah. we should understand that it's a live debate in even in the dark days of the 1500s. Okay. No, and this and, is like
3: and, and as we get to talking about Reuchlin, like as far as I as far as I'm concerned this is like this is like the the you know being raised by Uncle Ben moment for Reichen like this is the superhero origin story.
0: Yeah. No, it, it, it yeah. really is. Okay. So. Reuchlin is, I called Rabbi Ari Lama Gaon. He is a giant intellectually of the humanist movement. And he is probably, like you could argue, maybe one of the most learned guys in Europe at the time. We could say that, right? He, he speaks Greek. He, he reads Greek. He understands Hebrew. He's like read all of these texts. And he has developed an, a, an, a pretty important following. And you know who doesn't like him? The Franciscans <laughs> and, and, and the Dominicans. That's they don't funny. like him one bit. But this guy, Roiklin is very much intellectually so formidable. He, in some ways, reminds me, because of his varied interests, of Rabbi Moses Ben Maimonides, or, you know, like, I don't know, Like there's, there, there are certain figures in history, like Aquinas, that are just such intellectual giants. Royklin is one of those figures. Okay, so now let's pick up the story. Maximilian... He does this decree, and there is an outcry, particularly from the humanists. They said, whoa, wait a minute. And then Reuchlin gets involved. What happens next? So
3: initially, what happens is the, the emperor convenes like an academic committee to examine Pfeffer Korn's charges against like the Talmud.
0: Claudine Gay's anti-Semitism committee. Right, right.
3: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and Pfeffer Korn actually is psyched that Reuchlin is going to be involved and he thinks that Reichlin's going to be on his side because listen Reichlin on the one hand is this like intellectual giant he's the most influential legal thinker in all of Europe he's argued cases before the pope he authors he authors the like the first non-jewish written grammar of, of biblical hebrew in the history of Europe he's this like massively he knows uh, ancient hebrew aramaic greek i mean he's he is a an absolute prodigy Giant. Giant. And and he's one of the most renowned humanists in the world. And so Pfefferkorn kind of it's like a coup that they get Reichlin onto this committee. Reichlin then proceeds to systematically undermine every single thing that Pfeffercorn sought to do to the Jews. And the way it starts is you kind of go back. So like Reichlin, in order to understand. How Roichlin becomes the great hero who stands up to Pfefferkorn and ultimately becomes Pfefferkorn's undoing. In order to understand it, you kind of have to understand the the humanist interest in Jewishness, which is that for for a long time, basically a thousand years, the the moral or kind of like the account of moral history that the Christian church presents is basically that once upon a time. Many, many years ago, there was this ancient people and and they lived on the Mediterranean and they were a good and virtuous people. They were courageous. They were bright and they were curious. So curious, in fact, that they actually invented the systematic search for wisdom known as philosophy. These ancient people were the Greeks. And in fact, their only demerit was that though they had correctly hypothesized, at least their greatest thinkers had correctly hypothesized that there should be one cosmic sovereign over the entire universe, the Greeks themselves had not encountered any god that actually fit that model. They couldn't couldn't
0: give up their polytheism.
3: All they had were the Olympians. Now, on the other side of the Mediterranean was another ancient people. And now these ancient people were not good and comely and, and, and courageous. They were, in fact, backwards and crooked and fractious and superstitious and these people were the, were the Jews. These were the ancient Israelites. And their only redeeming quality, in fact, was that by some accident of fate, they had stumbled into a relationship with the one true God that actually fit the criteria that the Greek philosophers had hypothesized. Had hypothesized.
0: This is like Neoplatonism 101,
3: right? Yeah. Now, the problem was that these two people were on essentially opposite ends of the earth. Until in the fourth century B.C., bang, Alexander the Great comes, conquers the known world, brings them together. And what happens over the course of the next couple centuries is this like encounter between the Greeks and the Jews and this working out of Hellenism and Hebraism and figuring out how they come together. And all of it comes to a head with the founding of the Catholic Church that brings together the God of Israel with the best of of Hellenic thought. And the church, therefore, is like the, the, the standard bearer of that moral tradition from now until forever. It's basically right. the the God of Israel with the genius of of Athens. By the the 16th century and a little bit earlier too, like by kind of like the late 15th early 16th century and it all comes to a head with Martin Luther famously, but it's going on before Luther and Reuchlin is a big part of it and a, figures like Erasmus are a big part of it in 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 sort of in in the west of Europe as well. You kind of have this this movement of christian thinkers who kind of says whoa whoa, whoa, wait a minute that's a lovely story but it's also a bad story because we actually don't need greek philosophy to help us figure out what it is that the that the god of israel wants from us because the god of israel tells us what he wants he (laughs) gave us a whole bible to figure out what it was now luther martin luther And in eventually initiating the Protestant Reformation really brings us to a head because he's like, listen, this like this Greek obsession that you guys have is like is like verging on idolatrous. Right. But there is this sense of like, wait a minute, we've like ignored the Bible for a really long time and we've ignored the wisdom and we've ignored like the entire true history of the development of Christianity. And by the way, if you're worried about
0: the sexual exploitation of children. The Greek tradition is not so wonderful, but okay. Right,
3: right. So the Romans are like exposing their children, making fun of the Jews for like letting their children live like what a bunch of suckers and rubes. But anyway, so a lot of that. (laughs) Right, Uh, right. But what these humanists basically do is say, okay, wait a minute. We need to go back and figure out what our tradition, the Christian tradition, the biblical tradition actually says about how to live it, like, what is its moral philosophical I- interest and, and, and thrust? How do we figure that out? Well, in order to do that, the simple answer, certainly prior to, like, you know, the advent of the printing press and then Luther figuring out, being the first person in human history to figure out how to actually use the printing press for anything other than biblical printing. but But well, you do Luther- have this, like... There you were have this
0: pamphlets between Okay, but yeah, I hear right,
3: you. but Lu, like Luther is the second best-selling author in the history of print, second only to God, right? So right, like I mean, so. so but prior to this, you have this like scholarly elite, the so JK thinkers. Rowling
0: is catching up on. Martin
3: right, right. right. Well, yeah, Luther, that's a good. <laughs> nothing would make me happier than her than her dethroning Martin Luther for that number 2 spot. Yeah. But but you have these kind of figures who are like, okay, wait a minute. In order to understand where we're coming from like you could just say well look if you want to know what the bible says just open up a bible saint jerome translated it into latin for you so just read it but these things like whoa whoa, whoa. how do we know saint jerome's translation is a good translation shouldn't we actually go back to the sources and figure out like ad fontis right let's go back to the sources figure out what they say ourselves and once we do that well wait a minute there are a lot of different manuscripts that that we should compare one to the like and besides by the way like even if we're going to go back and read the, the, the ancient Bible in the Greek translation that Jerome, was, that, that Jerome was in part using, well, that Greek translation is itself a translation of the original Hebrew, right? So if we want to read the Hebrew Bible, we should probably know Hebrew and read it. Now, the problem, as all these humanists are trying to like make sense of the Bible, is that the Bible is a famously difficult work to interpret. And so as... You have like as they're going back and trying to make sense of this Hebraic tradition, this Hebraic civilization, this Hebraic mind world. They start to say, "Well, what we really need, if we're going to understand these works, are people who devoted their entire like sources that could give us access to people who devoted their entire lives to trying to figure out what these words study mean." Studying the
0: famous Italian uh, yes. kabbalist, so, right? So-
3: Exactly so at this time I mean,
0: what is Kabbalah really quickly we should...
3: so Kabbalah, so Kabbalah so Kabbalah is the is the Jewish mystical tradition. It goes all the way back to the to the reach you know to the early reaches of the of the rabbinic period, and sort of as rabbinic legal thought and philosophical thought is developing alongside it, and part and parcel of it, like inextricably bound up with it, is this mystical tradition that 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 seeks to understand the 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 world th- that seeks to understand human life in the context of the entirety the sort of the the entire taxonomy of divinity like what is what is humanity really in a world where there's a well God it's who that but it's also
0: like the text says this but if you count well, how you- many numbers of <laughs> like you know olive yeah line, there's this and then that would be was right re- it's it's really like you could argue the first kind of like deep literary criticism because. Yeah,
3: by the way, that's like a great way of thinking about it. Yeah. Like it is that right. Right. So what happens is Reichlin and all of his compatriots are like, we got to learn. We got to like study Jewish sources, A, so we can understand Hebrew and B, so we can understand how these ancient writers, these ancient Jewish writers understood the Bible, which we're trying to interpret and struggling to interpret. So Reichlin, like many, not like, you know, many in, 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 in nominal terms, but in relative, like in, in real terms, but in, in relative terms, like many kind of elite Christian thinkers at the time, starts to ask Jews to study with him. Now, many Christian thinkers who study with Jews are studying with Jewish converts to Christianity because those are the easiest people for them to find. Reichlin though, spends about a year in Rome. And for like for most of that time, he's he arguing to- a case before the pope. For most of that time, he happens upon a, a rabbi by the name of Obadiah Sforno. Right. And Rabbi Obadiah Sforno, who's known kind of affectionately in Jewish intellectual history as the Sforno, is one of the, he's like easily like a top 10, maybe top five commentator on the Bible. Like any person who's studying. You mean Rabin- of all time. Of all time. Anyone yeah, yeah. He's who's like, studying he's, the rabbinic Bible. giant, right. Classic commentary. So Reichlin actually spends months, every single day, studying Hebrew language and Hebrew literature uh, with the Sfarno, which is like a remarkable thing. These are like two of the brightest people in Europe studying together. And they both write about each other glowingly. And this is kind of the first moment where Reuchlin starts to develop this sense that not only is it true, as other, as other Christians thought, who remained with their anti-Judaism, Not only is it true that we in some ways intellectually need the Jews and Jewish tradition, but it may even be that this Jewish tradition, rich as it is, like academically and intellectually rich as it is, may have produced a people loyal to it and immersed in it who themselves are very valuable and who might even be the kind of people I'd want to be friends and colleagues with. And this kind of puts Reichlin on a journey that eventually brings him directly into confrontation with Pfeffer Korn.
0: Okay, so should we also say here that Reichlin also thinks that maybe these texts would unlock what might be called magic? Well, yeah, right. So, so, so we Reuch- should just say, I mean, I'm not, by the way, this is nothing against Reichlin. It's the it's I'm sorry, it's the frickin' 16th century people. <laughs> there are a lot of think people believe all kinds of stuff that we we think are ridiculous today but he's like hey you know maybe if i really understand Kabbal- K- kabbalah we could i could figure out how to make gold or i could figure out but, you know yeah. how to change the weather or something yes but like they're not
3: thinking about it like the way that like when we think about people who believe that kind of stuff today it's like astrology it's yeah, like yeah they're cranks it's like hippy dippy nonsense yeah but this is a period in time where like not only are all the greatest minds across Europe, the people who would be the architects, not only of the Renaissance, but eventually of the scientific revolution. Right. All the greats of the tradition are all thinking this way. And they're not thinking about it like like astrology, like tarot card people. They're thinking about this as like a scientific discipline. Like the way they think about the world is like, and in many ways, the way they think about the world is much, I think, richer and more accurate to human experience than the way we think about the world, which is like, yeah, I see, I see your point there. Yeah. Reuchlin and Pico della Mirandola, Mirandola, William Harvey, eventually Isaac Newton, William Whiston, all the greats of the Renaissance and the Scientific Revolution, the way they thought about the world was like, the world is actually so much richer and broader than what any one academic discipline can describe. Right? Whereas today, we kind of think of the world as like, well, the only things that are real are things you can demonstrate in a scientific laboratory. And that's, like, a very popular thing for, for people to encounter on, like, Twitter or whatever. But, like, and we all know that that's not true, but we act as if that is true because, like, we all know that there are lots of real things that exist that you can't demonstrate in a lab. Love, friendship, loyalty. But let alone supernatural phenomena like angels and demons and fairies and blah, blah, blah. But, like, yeah. we all know that That's, a, that's human a, experience... This is a
0: totally fair point. Your point is that, like, yeah, to be more charitable, Royklin is interested in kind of understanding... The mystery, the infinite, the of the universe. Like he wants to. Yeah, Reckless. Like
3: I'm not going to pretend the world is smaller and more yeah. impoverished than it is. I'm going to accept the world as, as as maximally constructed, and then I'm going to try to understand every bit of it. And if that right. means I need to try and figure out how alchemy works, I'm going to do that. You know, yeah, that's, a, that's a very good point. We don't we <laughs> yeah. don't want
0: to right, right. Now we should just point out because we're going to get to the big, the big, the big debate, if you will, yeah. that. Intellectually speaking, Royklin versus Pfefferkorn is like Walter Russell Mead against Max Blumenthal. <laughs> <Right>. One guy <laughs> is a, like super genius who has like forgotten more than the other thinks he knows. And then the other guy is a fraud and doesn't know what the hell he's talking about and is just a con man. It's like an insult. It's an insult to one to have to debate with the other. Exactly. But this is the bed you made, Franciscans and Dominicans. This is what you guys decided. You wanted to back Pfefferkorn and say he was some genius and had special insights. Well, guess what happens? You're going to have to deal with Johannes Reuchlin. All right. Yes. So
3: Reuchlin stands up and he writes this long it's like officially a pamphlet but it's really like a book
0: this length. is the one called reading glasses yeah he's, like, the, he's the out, trolling he's trolling peppercorn who called it the hand mirror like take a look at yourself he's like reading glasses why yeah. don't you you know you, you don't know how, you don't know what the hell you're reading basically Exza- saying, right?
3: exactly before right. you look in the mirror you need to put on glasses right and so it's called in in, in German It's called the augenspiegel or which means the eyeglasses right right uh, so Reuchlin writes this like fiery, but meticulous and brilliantly reasoned defense of the Talmud, of Jews, of Jewishness and Jewish tradition from, from Pfefferkorn's attacks.
0: And he made... By the way, un- it wasn't perfect. We should say that he there are a couple texts that he says, you know what, these really are blasphemous or this, some of this is heresy and maybe you could ban that stuff. But the bulk of it is really great. And by the way, Emperor Maximilian, I think every German university should have two professors of Hebrew. Right. Because that's how great this stuff is. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly, exactly. So right. so what
3: what
0: he's like, I want... I mean, there's a small he's like, you know what? You have like there's a small fraction of a point. I'll grant it for a way, some text that I've never even heard of that, like, wasn't, it's not even part of the tournament, but it's like, he says, all right, this one's bad. You
3: know? Right, right. And, and, I, and I actually want to get to, I actually want to get to that exact point about, like, the, the teaching Hebrew in German universities yeah. argument, because it actually says something important about Reichlin. But basically, the brilliant, like, he deploys tons of arguments, Reichlin. But one of the most brilliant ones he makes is very simple. He says, and it's like, it's such an incredible troll of pfeffercorn. He goes, bro. I do not yet know how to read the Talmud fully, and I love. I, that. I love that. Right, and I'm freaking Johannes Reichlin. Yeah, you, I studied with this far. Wait, yeah, right, right. <laughs> so you bunch of clowns who right. have who can't even touch my pinky finger. Who the heck do you think you are to tell me you understand the Talmud and you know it's heretical? Like, if I don't understand it, you definitely don't understand. By the way, it. we
0: should also say here. Pfefferkorn not only persuades the the emperor to give the edict, he also is in charge of confiscating the Talmuds. And because Pfefferkorn is a man of such low moral character, in some cases, he extorts the Jewish community that would pay anything to keep their Talmuds. So basically, he would make a little money on the side if you come across a particularly wealthy Jewish community that would be willing to pay a kind of ransom For their books, so even Pfefferkorn is like kind of cheating his own, you know, his own edict in a way. We should just point that out that he's just he's just a, you know, a swindler,
3: (laughs) right? Exactly. So he he now what Reichlin does over the course of this over the course of this dispute is he kind of makes two moves that he believes are totally dependent one on the other but that his defenders would actually pull apart and that's important the two components of his argument are that one pfeffercorn and his allies are a bunch of intellectual clowns frauds frauds They have no idea what they're talking about. By the way, there's an
0: interesting like little side note here is that then they at one point they kind of allow, like, all right, if Pfeffercorn oversees the printing of Talmuds, he just and then he gathers a group of people who don't know what the hell they're talking about and don't understand what they're reading to excise portions of it. So not only does the Talmud become unintelligible, but the edits they make are based on like mistranslations and things like that. That so they just they don't understand like anything. So it's, it, it becomes this kind of, you can't understand, it's a babble, the, the pfefferkorn version of the Talmud and things like that. So, we just...
3: Yeah, because th- this guy's like, you jamokes are like a bunch of like torturers and, and ignoramuses, like who the heck do you think you are to condemn an entire, not just people, but like intellectual tradition and an intellectual tradition that's not only Jewish, but like increasingly Christian, like who do you even think you are? Yeah. So that's point argument number one. Right. So argument number two is, remember, he's a, he's a legal scholar. So he grounds a lot of his argument in arguments over legal rights. Right. This
0: is the part about Jews deserve the same protections as anybody else in the Holy Roman Empire.
3: Right. And the word that he uses for that is, is in Latin is concives, right? He says, or concives, right? So he says that, that the Jews are not only a protected, like a, a minority and lesser than, but at least a protected class right. in in the Holy Roman Empire. They're actually our fellow citizens. They are concives, They're our fellow citizens. We and they, he says, are fellow citizens of one and the same Roman Empire. And this is a radical position. Now, he sees the two as like inextricably bound up because his whole point is like, to the extent that Jewish wisdom and knowledge is the key to the future of of Christian moral philosophy. How would it make any sense for us at the very same time to, to banish actual Jews from civic life? Meaning if their intellectual tradition is essential for civic life, why would they not be part of, equally part of our civic life? Meaning the whole thing is contradiction in terms. But his argument about Jewish like brotherhood and fellow citizenship that sets off a, a massive backlash, even from people who would otherwise have defended him. And so, but what he does, strategically at least, is very smart. Because that argument, the argument about fellow citizenry, that's the toughest one to swallow. He he walks it back a little bit under all of his backlash, but he sticks firm on property rights, right? Like, meaning he's willing to concede, okay, they're wayward, whatever it is. But like Jewish property, he never backs down from but. Strategically, he's very smart to tie that argument to the intellectual argument, because what happens is that even people like elites in the Christian church who are otherwise very poorly disposed to friendship with Jews and who don't like his argument that Jews are fellow citizens are so like they're so they look with such disgust upon the the establishment, the church establishment that wanted to like. Stamp out any intellectual inquiry inquiry that the humanists were doing. That they see Fefferkorn, like Fefferkorn's right. attack, comes to be seen not as an attack on Jews, but as an attack on humanism. And so, a lot of people, like Erasmus, for example, who's like the, the great intellectual celebrity of the day, along with Reuchlin, prior to Martin Luther, he trans. I mean, he he pr- produces this yeah. legendary Erasmus, by the way,
0: not as friendly to the Jews as Reuchlin. But okay.
3: so right. So Erasmus. Does not like the Jews. Really, does not like the Jews. But he becomes a huge defender of Reichlin, precisely on the grounds that otherwise we're gonna let the you know we're gonna let the the anti-humanists
0: win. And well, also, th- it was like a question of like if you understand. Like, it was also a sense of like, hey, this is a serious business. These texts, and I'm talking about the the, the Christian texts yeah. as well. I'm saying, and part of the corruption that Luther ends up fighting, but also the humanists are resisting is this idea that you can take a a con man like pfeffercorn and elevate him to the point where he is you know advising on policies of like what books to ban that itself is like an insult to erasmus even though he doesn't like the Jews.
3: yeah now what pfeffercorn does throughout this debate is he's like trafficking in as a junus right oh my god
0: so pfeffercorn flips yeah. out yeah, right? Pfefferkorn goes nuts because and because Roitlin wins life. the day. They he Maximilian, he revokes the edict, and then Pfefferkorn like gets busy, prints another pamphlet, and accuses Roiklin of among other things like he's a fraud. It's all like this is psych- what psychologists call projection. Yeah. Every, <laughs> you know, every accusation is a confession. So he's a fraud. He's getting paid by Jews, which is what Pfefferkorn was doing, by the way, when he would take the money from wealthy communities so they could keep their talmuds. when he was, you know, what else? He said, you know, you're 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 part of a kind of he accused him of, like, conspiring against the the pope, all this stuff and just basically launches an ad hominem. Like He just goes ham. You're
3: a t- and like you're a tool of essentially you're a tool of the Jewish lobby trying to undermine. Uh, the Yes, here we know. go. This exactly. is
0: the, these are the parallels, everybody. Okay. Exactly. Right. So this is like, yeah, you're just, you're, you're, he's like, you know, oh, you're just, you're just Apex man. The bought and paid for by Nuremberg. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So, Reuchlin having none of it. Right. And Reuchlin comes goes back even harder.
3: <laughs> scorched
0: earth. <laughs> so keep Trevor. in mind, these are pamphlets that are being printed. And now it's like this, <laughs> this is like, as I said, it's like a meme war. It's like everybody's, you know, and that, and it, it's all like being done. In these kind of in this pamphlet debate, like it's like the Federalist and the Anti Federalist papers of of the 16th century,
3: right? And you <laughs> you you even have these like, as you say, it starts to become a meme war, a meme war because their followers like get in on the joke. So like the the, the battle lines are basically on the one hand, like the Reichlin supporters are like Pfefferkorn is a fraud. The Pfefferkorn supporters are like no Reichlin is, is a fraud. Right. Well, I'm not I'm saying like the Reuchlin people are accusing Fefferkorn of being a fraud right, and but the
0: Fefferkorn people are accusing Fefferkorn
3: right. are accusing Reuchlin of being like bought and paid for by the Jews right. and et cetera. And so what the Reuchlin followers start to do is they circulate like it's awesome. Like they circulate this. This is the, the letters of illustrious men. Uh, the
0: letters of like, but also like what unacceptable, like something like, yeah, right. The letters are right. Right. You're right. Right, letters of yeah, illustrious, or not right. not illustrious or something like
3: that. Right. Well, meaning it's called the letters of illustrious men, like sarcastically. So what they're right. <laughs> what they're doing is so well. Sorry, well, like sorry. one of them, and they like no, no. They, right, I t- right. Actually, I take it back. You're right. The letters of illustrious men. That's a, a work that that Reuchlund publishes, the, like Africa, my, defending himself right. from the curator
0: exactly. And then they but, do the letters of the what the not not. Expression.
3: But basically, but basically, Reuchlund's followers. Reuchlund's followers end up putting out this, like, farcical exchange of – this, like, farcical letters. Vicious satire. Supposedly written by – you know, like – it's satire, right? It's satirical, but, for, you know, uh, supposedly written by yeah. feffercorn that just – But also, like, take, this...
0: take shots at, at the prominent Dominicans and Franciscans who are back yeah. of Yeah. One of the ones is, like, about how one of these, I guess, ministers, like, literally craps his pants. I'm not kidding. <laughs> right, they're, right. They're, some pretty they're, – they're going hard.
3: Right. And they basically portray them as these like buffoons who are trying to to stamp out the the possibility of moral philosophy in in, in Christian Europe.
0: Now, but they have a sense of humor about it, which is kind of yeah, why it's a cool
3: episode. It's all it's like, like bitingly funny stuff. Yeah, but like what the interesting thing about it is that like you can already see like Reuchlin is such an interesting figure because Reuchlin's supporters can sometimes be just as anti-Jewish as as Pfefferkorn but in a different way and Reuchlin himself is all the more remarkable therefore for resisting this and not falling into that trap so like for example By the way it
0: got got real in the sense that there were that Reuchlin's safety was threatened by the the Dominicans and the Franciscans and so he had to retire to like some rural community in Germany or something and he was like you know Like the Dominicans like hound him for the rest of his life Oh yeah so he had to Um, like Seek safety, you know, through obscurity, so to speak. Yeah. So equivalent of moving to Montana or
3: something, right? Right. So, like, some of Reuchlin's supporters end up accusing Pfefferkorn of like, and this is the great irony of Pfefferkorn's life, of like, yeah, if I were, meaning, the the argument against Pfefferkorn in some cases ends up being, he is bringing so much shame on the Christian intellectual tradition, and he's such a buffoon. Yeah, he's such a buffoon. Like, this is a plot. It could only be explained as a plot concocted by a Jew to bring down Christianity from within. So, like, Erasmus has this, like, unbelievably anti-Semitic but also hilarious burn of Pfefferkorn where he goes, he goes, Pfefferkorn, he goes, Pfefferkorn can hardly be castigated as a half-Jew for his action indicate that he's a Jew and a half. You know, so, like, you know, you have stuff like that. But Reuchlin is therefore especially extraordinary because... He actually never separates the humanistic defense of what he's doing from his defense of the Jewish people and the Jewish intellectual tradition. And what he basically says is that he kind of lays the groundwork for this argument that like you can't really understand Western morality if it's not grounded in the Hebraic tradition and in Jewish thought. And... That has two consequences, or that has rather two implications: implication one is that we need to study the Jewish tradition and the Hebraic tradition more carefully and and devote more time and attention to it and we need to think differently about our relationship with actual not just dead Jews but living jews and and there is, however, a limit to it, and you point you alluded to it earlier, which is when Reuchlin Suggests to the Emperor what should be done in light of his of his eyeglasses book, right? Of the Augenspiegel. What he recommends to the Holy Roman Emperor is he says, as you alluded to earlier, not only are these texts not heretical, and not only is it good to study, you know, Hebrew, etc., etc., but it's actually essential that citizens of the empire know how to do this. And therefore, every, you know, German university, as it were should hire instructors in Hebrew and now he had just gotten through saying the, the only people who are expert in this are the Jews and you know even I am still getting up to par on this stuff so you would think that in light of his suggestion what would be the natural next step the natural next step would be for him to say and therefore hire Jewish teachers to teach in the German universities right, right. But that's not what he says what he says is we should enlist the help of the Jewish community how? By borrowing their books, secured against loss and damage by a deposit, right? Because you know how much the Jews love money, right? So, meaning we're gonna we're gonna use their books, but we're not gonna use them. Now, that's not because Roiklin himself was unwilling to learn with living Jews, right? It's not like he was only willing to learn from dead Jews, but not living Jews. He spent a year studying with one of the great luminaries it, of the it Jewish was tradition
0: a, of the time. That was but, as far as he could
3: go. However, however, it is. That element of Reuchlin's thought is remarkable precisely because it seems so contradictory to how he himself lived his life. And therefore, what you could prognosticate moving forward was that Reuchlin actually represented this other path of where Christian Europe could go. Meaning Reuchlin set Europe as it's having this humanistic encounter with Hebrew for really the first time since the beginnings of the church, right? As Europe is, is, or, you know, the West since the beginning of church, but as Europe is really for the very first time ever having this encounter with, with Hebraism, except for like a brief moment in the Middle Ages, he basically sets Christian Europe on this alternative path, right? Like one path is the path of Simon of Trent. One path is the path of Pfefferkorn, One path is the path of eventually Martin Luther, which is like, look the the jews are are dirty and disgusting and degraded and they want the blood our blood and the blood of our children and even if as luther himself would who was who's was a defender of rightlkin even if it were true that we needed from a humanistic academic perspective and a theological perspective to have access to jewish wisdom at best what we need are the dead jews but the living jews they're still as disgusting as as ever before and in luther's case like maybe the fact that we actually do need the jews has to make us twice as vicious towards living Jews, that's one path. But Reichlin sets Europe, like kind of sketches out another path for Europe, which is to say maybe the fact that the West, uh, the Christian West and and the West as a whole is better off for its encounter with the Jewish intellectual tradition. What that might mean also is that we'll be better off for our encounter with and fellow citizenship with and friendship with not just dead Jews, but living Jews. And Europe actually has both of those paths in it. Continental Europe chooses one path.
0: Ultimately, yeah, well, the Dutch are, are, are a little bit of a different story. The but...
3: Dutch are a different story, but in many ways, the, the Dutch are the Dutch, the Dutch are and the, are,
0: and the English are, right. are the good guys. In this
3: but like, most of continental Europe, and particularly the lands that would kind of bear the legacy of the, eventually the Holy Roman Empire, like Germany, chooses one path. And that's the path of Luther. It's the path of Pfefferkorn. It's the path of the blood libels. It's the path of, it's the path of viciousness towards the Jews. Right. But the path that Reuchlin sketches out ends up becoming deeply influential in England in particular, and in the Dutch Republic as well. And it's there that if you're looking for like an alternative way to think about Christian and eventually just broadly Western friendship and interest in the jewish intellectual tradition something that's an alternative to kind of the same story that we usually hear about like it's all horrible and blood libels and then the holocaust happens and that's the culmination of it if you want an alternative path that explains a lot of the rest of of western history
0: including the founding fathers in america and the attitudes which by the way that'll be another episode with the chief rabbi because we we really go along (laughs) but this is Then We're we're going to get to that later, but that is a part of it. We should say, Roikland is planting this seed for tolerance. And that is something that is so valuable and so essential to understanding the American experiment.
3: And those seeds end up, exactly, those seeds end up bearing fruit in England, in the Dutch Republic, and eventually uh, in the United States of America. Okay, I
0: want to touch on two more things with the peppercorn and Roikland. The first is and we should not we should emphasize this is that there was a live debate in 1509 and the following years as to whether or not the jews would be even able to legally print a talmud or at least not the pfefferkorn talmud which is nonsense and because of reukland's intervention we have the first printed talmuds that are then able to i mean like there are a lot of earlier versions, and I'm basing this, I should say, on Henry Abramson, the great Yeshiva University scholar. Who I think, uh, has, I think
3: Turo University, I think.
0: Tories sorry, my bad, yeah. Touro College. Yeah. Okay, but because of this, we really have the sort of accessibility of the Talmud, you could argue, that it, it it's no longer has to be handwritten out, and that's a game changer. I mean, maybe just talk a little bit about that. Because of Reuchlund's intervention, Jews were able in Europe to print the Talmud. That is a huge thing.
3: Yeah. So right. So so censorship. It's an important point. Yeah. So so much of the history of anti-Semitism is like a history of technology. Yeah. Because there is censorship of the Talmud in there in kind of the you know the the depths of the Middle Ages. So like you know the the mid thirteenth century after
0: yeah. Uh, and by the way, there were yeah. other Jewish converts. We should say, like Pablo Cristiano. and like, yeah, who Nicholas did a similar Delan. thing with the Talmud before Pfefferkorn. But this is important because of Gutenberg. That's that's right. That's right. Right. But where where Christian like
3: official Christian and like institutional Christian censorship of the Talmud really takes off is with the the rise of the printing press. So you have you know you have lots of you have lots of like official commissions that are like governmental like governmental commissions. Right. Usually staffed by by Christians and very often by by kind of like Christian like Jewish converts to Christianity, whose job it is to like take out you know apparently objectionable material from the Talmud, so like you'll have entire sections of the Talmud like wholesale deleted in some in some printing houses. We are able to get the first full Talmuds printed because of what? Well, yeah, meaning what ends up happening is like as (laughs) there becomes this there becomes this non Jewish demand for Talmudic texts that ends up being a a, a and, and in addition to that some of the great Jewish printing houses are run by Christians and as a consequence like we owe so much of the history of like the survival of Jewish literature in print to to non-Jews who were friendly to the cause of Jewish literature and one of my favorite stories actually is is probably the most rabbinically learned non-Jew in history was also the most important uh, 17th century parliamentarian in England by the name of John Seldon. He was so important that actually both sides of the English Civil War are recruiting him to be a leader in their cause. He's widely, he's widely known across Europe as the most brilliant man in Europe by figures like John Milton, right, Thomas Hobbes, Hugo Grotius, like widely acknowledged that John Seldon is a genius. And he makes his reputation as a scholar of rabbinic literature. So he he authors these like massive, massive you know, works of like natural law, et cetera, the, and his most, his most famous works, which are still influential in international law today, are actually patterned on, on important schema from rabbinic literature and just are shot through with rabbinic commentary. So there's a point at which King Charles in England like believes that, like accuses Selden of being seditious and whatever it is, eventually lets him out of jail. But for a while, he's kept, he's kept I believe, in the Tower of London. And he's in prison there for quite for quite a bit of time, and the the rule is that Selden gets to have like fifteen sheets of paper and one book, and so he says, "Okay, the one book that I want is the Babylonian Talmud." Now, it may be in a couple of volumes, but right. it's well, now it's it's in like you know like forty volumes, right? But like but but he ends up getting like forty books for the price of one—the ultimate you know Jewish move. But he but yeah, so like Selden like. Selden is, like, deeply interested in reading the Talmud and its original, as close to the original as he could possibly find it. Like, he had no interest in censoring the Talmud. He thought the Talmud was the entire basis for the English tradition of liberty. Like, he didn't think that English, English morality and moral philosophy was coherent at all without rabbinic literature. And so the, it's precisely because of these, like, intellectual pressures, or at least in, in great part because of these intellectual pressures, that Jewish literature is able to flourish the way that it does.
0: Okay, second point. Daniel Goldhagen's great book, well, maybe not so great book, Hitler's Willing Executioner, spends a bit of time on the history of the anti-Semitic purges and pogroms, but also the imagery and so forth that is really, that he claims is very unique to Germany. Lots of historians have disputed this. I, uh, I had a great conversation yesterday with another great, Guest of the show, Michael Moynihan, who is very knowledgeable on this, and he explained all of his problems with the Goldhagen thesis. But I want to just bring it up because obviously after the Holocaust, Germany, you know, lots of people are saying why Germany, you know, et cetera. cetera. I'm not gonna, that's a whole other show, but I want to just point out the story of Johannes Reichlin tells us that you cannot just say an entire people, an entire culture. Is anti Semitic or whatever, what have you, that these were live debates. And in this case, even though it is a dark time for our people, Rabbi, the good guys win. And a non Jew named Reuchlin wins the debate. So I just want to point this out. It's true that there is probably more images after the printing press that are from Germany that depict Jews, you know, in horrific kind of these libels against Jews, that's bad. But it's also true that there were a lot of righteous Germans, just as there were even during the show-up. And it's never, I just want to stress to our listeners, I know this is a long interview, I want to stress to our listeners that there is a fatalism to assuming that you will never be able to, if, if you erase Reuchlin, if you will, from German history, which we should not do, I just want to make that very clear, that it's never a matter of, well, that's just the German gene or something like that. It's a live debate. Anti-Semitism, these things are not inevitable. And every generation, there will be, you know, we find in every generation that we are, we are fighting this, this war for, you know, and it comes up again and again. And, you know, it matters what side you're on.
3: There's a, I mean, lest, lest your listeners think that Jewish history forgot Klim.
0: No, Jewish history has not forgotten.
3: One of the great commentators on rabbinic literature by the name of Rabbi Israel Lipschitz of Danzig flourished at around the turn of the 19th century. He's one of the most famous commentators on that earliest compendium of rabbinic literature called the Mishnah. He has this novella in which he explores the concept that you alluded to earlier of the righteous Gentile, which is this notion in rabbinic literature, which John Selden, whom I mentioned before, thought was the entire reason, what, which he thought was the reason why the entirety of the English liberal tradition needed to be rooted in in an understanding of rabbinic literature. But but rabbinic literature has this concept that <laughs> which means the the righteous amongst the nations of the world have an equal portion in the world to come with the most righteous Jewish person. Meaning you don't have to be a Jew to be saved. In other words, is the, is the, is kind of the, the basic point of it. You just have to be a righteous person, you know, according to certain criteria of basic morality, but like you have to be a righteous person. Now, Rabbi Lipschitz in his commentary has a, like a long, long, like excursus on what it means to be a righteous Gentile. And he actually gives examples of people who were, who were righteous Gentiles who have an equal portion in the world to come with the greatest Jewish sages and, and, and saints in history. The first person that he uses as an example is actually Edward Jenner, who's the inventor of the smallpox vaccine. And he says, however, Yenner, you might say, well, Jenner was not only rewarded in the world to come, he was rewarded in this world because he died a wealthy man. But he says there are some righteous amongst the nations of the world who who suffered in this world, but nevertheless are going to be greatly rewarded by God in the world to come on account of their righteousness. And his first example is he calls him Chassid Reichlin, the Chassid, right? The righteous person, Johannes Reichlin. And he says, Reuchlin saved the the Talmud from being burned. He stood up to Kaiser, he says Kaiser Maximilian, right to to the Holy <laughs> Roman Emperor, and was hounded by his enemies until he died. Until he died depressed and in poverty, and I think it's actually instructive to compare the the righteousness that Reuchlin represents to the kind of righteous gentile that we're used to thinking about in the context of the history of the Holocaust and World War II, right. because and without in any way, God forbid, diminishing anybody's sacrifice, like the the righteous gentiles of the Holocaust, like the stories where we we often hear, I mean, these are people who. Who are, who are giants, like moral giants, who oftentimes put their lives and the lives of their children on the line to hide Jews from Nazis. Uh, but I think the reason that comparison is instructive is because typically, like when we think about the Holocaust, when we think about a righteous Gentile, we're not thinking about people who had like an intellectual or moral program. They just were moral people. Uh, like they were people who, for whatever reason, because they were, because they, they you know, They thought it was the right thing to do because they thought their Christianity called them to it because they thought because they were they thought nationalism called them to a decency, whatever it was. But like we're used to thinking about people who like hid Jews because it was the right thing to do. But like it wasn't part of any larger movement or program. But what Reuchlin represents, and think the reason I, I think the reason he's so fascinating and important, not just for Jewish history, but for Western history, is because what Reuchlin represents is a sort of righteousness, both about and with respect to the, you know, and, and, and in support of actual real living Jewish people is because his theory of friendship towards Jews is actually part of a larger intellectual program that undergirds the entirety of Western moral and political philosophy, which is to say that if we like Reuchlin's belief is that if we want to have a well ordered politics and morality we need friendship with the Jewish people and we need respect for its intellectual tradition. Yes. Now that insight becomes for, for reasons that are not like, you know, it's not like, you know, Reuchlin is like kind of a patron saint of English Liberty, but he does lay the groundwork for it. And we'll do, we could do this in a future episode, but basically the entirety of, of English, the history of English Liberty becomes premised on that very idea that, we actually are both the living we we are 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 in one of the heirs to the republican tradition of the hebrew bible and if the the traditions and laws and morals of the hebrew bible apply today then it must be that the people to whom those things were bequeathed and promised are still relevant today unlike the catholic church which tells us they've all been superseded the jews are still around today and if they're still around and their laws and traditions and beliefs are still relevant. it must be that God's promises to them are still relevant. If God's promises to them are still are still relevant and operative, then it must be that we, as as righteous englishmen, as 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 stewards of the biblical tradition of republicanism and liberty and virtue and morality, it must be that we have a role in helping God bring about His promises to the Jewish people. And so you can trace a line basically directly from Reuchlin to 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 the English Reformation to John Seldon, to John Milton, to Thomas Hobbes, to John, all of those figures, directly down to Arthur J. Balfour, who is the the intellectual heir to this line of thinking, who authors the Balfour Declaration and sets in motion Zionism and eventually the state of Israel as we know it. So, the righteousness that Reuchlin represents is not just like a, a singular act of individual heroism unrelated to a larger program, the heroism that he represents is is something that actually gives us a different way of thinking about what the West is and what it's capable of. And it, in that respect, the I think Jewish people should should look to Reuchlin not as an in, not merely as a, an individual worthy of admiration, but as the key to a way of thinking about the West's potential, for goodness, not just goodness for the Jewish people, but as as capable of, meaning we should look to Reuchlin almost as giving us a responsibility. Like if Reuchlin yeah. could stand up for us, if Reuchlin felt his responsibilities to us, what responsibilities do we owe to enlightening people like him and to contributing to the society that he cared about and to making it as righteous and virtuous as it possibly could be? And I think in that respect, it it, it kind of... It, you basically have two ways to think about the West. You have the Luther way of like, this is just a battle to the finish, like a cataclysmic battle to the finish. It's like either kill or be killed. The Jews got to look out for themselves. And there is truth to that because the Holocaust happened because of that thinking. But the other side of it is Reichling, which is not how can we save ourselves from each other, but what do we owe each other? And what kind of beautiful world can we build together if we, if yeah. we partner together?
0: That's a great place to end it. And we didn't even get a chance to talk about the modern, which is in the monologue, but you know, which I think would have been good, but this was so rich rabbi Ari Lam. This was just an intellectual banquet. It was fantastic. <laughs> this and, is like the most fun I ever have on a regular. Basis, I mean, this you know? <laughs> is like, this was, I hope the listeners appreciate it. I know it's going to be a long episode, but I have just in my survey of friends asked, have you ever heard of Johannes prefer? And you know, anything about Johannes Brooklyn and like, A lot of people don't know this history, even very intelligent people who know a lot about Jewish history. They don't know a lot about this. And it's such an important story. And I do think in some ways can kind of help explain the schism, if you will, within the diaspora Jewish community today when it comes to Gaza and things like that. And we we have we have our modern peppercorns for sure. Yeah,
3: that that is for sure. Well, thank you so much for having me on.
0: I really appreciate it. Rabbi Ari Lam. What a treat. Thank you so much. And we'll be back soon. This has been The Re-Education with Eli Lake, a Nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcast. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the
2: show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.